What's happening, weirdos? This is Chris Kelly. I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, I should have said that first. I hope everybody's doing well. This is Chris Kelly. Uh, We're doing well. I don't know if you guys listened to Friday, uh, the We Made It Weird episode with me and Val, but a little update. Everybody's happy and healthy, including Leela. So we are uh, out of the woods. We had our, our, basically our last day of quarantine is tomorrow after a little bit of a scare, but we are good. We're back, baby. Summer of George. We're good. And I'm so happy to share this episode with you. Chris Kelly directed, uh, we talk a little bit about this, episode two and three of the first season of Crashing. I loved working with him. He also created uh, the movie, which you'll hear, that I love very, very much, Other People. If you're looking for a wonderful, hilarious, heartfelt indie movie, um, it is incredible. Check it out. We all need good things to watch during quarantine. Other People is at the top of my recs. Marex. Um, he also made uh, The Other Two. He's made so many wonderful things and was the head writer for SNL. And he's a delight and he's hilarious. So let's get to it as quickly as possible. Um, it means so much if you want to show your support for the show by trying one of our Pete's Picks. I have a new one for you guys, which is Stitch Fix. We have been using Stitch Fix, Val and I, for years. Uh, It started when I noticed when Val and I moved in together, there was always a box from Stitch Fix. She was trying on clothes, she was keeping the ones she liked, and she was sending them back. And that is what Stitch Fix is about. It's like an online personal shopper curated to your size, your taste, and uh, they make it so easy. And that is basically where Val gets all of her clothes, and I've started doing it as well. It is so easy, so fun, and I'm so glad that they're the newest Pete's pick because we can give them a genuine and enthusiastic endorsement. Have you ever looked at your current cold weather wardrobe options and just get a chill? I think it might be time to ditch that old sweater and upgrade that jacket. A Stitch Fix personal stylist can help you pick new pieces that are timeless. Stitch Fix offers clothing hand-selected, as I mentioned, by expert stylists for your unique size, style, and your budget. Each piece is chosen for your fit and your life, and it's the easy solution to finding what makes you look and feel your best. It makes online shopping way less daunting and easier and a lot more fun. Try on the pieces at home, keep your favorites, send back the rest. Stitch Fix has free shipping, easy returns and exchanges, and a prepaid return envelope is included. There's no subscription required. Try Stitch Fix once or set up automatic deliveries. You pay just a $20 styling fee for each box, which gets credited towards pieces you keep. There's no hidden fees ever. Stitch Fix has styles and clothing to fit any occasion for women, men, and kids. They ship all over the United States as well as the United Kingdom. Get started today at stitchfix, S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot com slash Pete, and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash Pete for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix, which you're going to want to. Stitchfix.com slash Pete and show your support of this show. Speaking of an easy and natural and wonderful thing that you can get for yourselves to show your support of this always free podcast is our friends at Brooklinen, my favorite bedding and sheets that we've ever had on our bed. 
Val and I were always looking forward to staying in nice hotels so we could sleep on better sheets than we had. And then we realized, what are we doing? Why don't we just get nice sheets? But then we looked and they're so, so, so expensive. Uh, Rich and Vicky, the founders of Brooklyn, and had the same problem. They were trying to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. And like us, they couldn't find it. But unlike me, who just complains, they went out and founded Brooklinen, the first direct-to-consumer betting company. So it's the same high-end stuff, but they cut out the middleman and sell it directly to you. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without the luxury-level markup. Brooklinen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and your tastes. Brooklinen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting, and they're so confident you will love their products, they even offer a one-year money-back guarantee. That's 365 Earth days. And Brooklinen is so much more than sheets. They've got comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear, and more. We were tired of sleeping on sheets that just didn't make us feel great, didn't feel great on our skin, didn't look great, didn't brighten up the room, didn't go with the palette. Our sheets stunk. We needed Brooklinen, and when we heard about them on another podcast, we tried them, and I'm so excited to offer a special deal to you guys. You guys need to be waking up feeling happy about your bedding with a great night's sleep that feels great and looks great. Trust me, you got to check out Brooklinen. It's 2021. Do something nice for yourself to start the new year. To help you do that, Brooklinen has a special offer for weirdos. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code WEIRD to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter promo code WEIRD to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. Brooklinen.com. Use promo code WEIRD at checkout to show your support of this podcast. Last but not least, our third peach pick. What am I wearing today? Oh, it's like sexy mermaids on like a dark blue sea. Of course, I am pulling up and looking at my me undies. Me undies, it, guys, it's time we stopped messing around talking about funny things and talking about something really important. I'm talking about your underwear. That's right, we're doing it. MeUndies believes undies are something that should be yelled about from the rooftops or shown off in mirror selfies for Instagram. <laughs> They're not undie shy, so let's talk like I just did. I just looked at my mermaid underwear, and I like it. Again, we heard about MeUndies on another podcast. Both Val and I did a complete undie overhaul, and we haven't looked back. I have their loungewear. I have their onesies. They're made of the softest, best fabric, and I love the patterns. They make me smile like my mermaid undies are making me smile right now. MeUndies isn't just here to make sure every booty is comfortable. They're also about limiting the amount of laundry you have. How thoughtful. They've designed a membership, which I am a member, that not only saves you 30% on each order, but delivers a fun new pair of undies or socks right to your door each month. Plus, you're the boss. You can control the shipments, and you get early access to their most exclusive prints. My prize uh, favorite ones are my Star Wars prints. MeUndies has a offers a range of sizes, included X, extra small to 4XL. I like mine a little bit looser, so I'm actually 3XL. Little info. They even offer the softest loungewear. Fill your closet with things you actually want to put on, especially during this weird quarantine time. MeUndies has a great offer for weirdos. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has problem-free Akuna Matata philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product, 
product for any reason. They'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. So for 15% off your first order, free shipping, and 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird. All right, guys, this is Chris Kelly. Enjoy, uh, and we'll see uh, you guys on Friday as well. If you want to check out Val and I, on We Made It Weird, but in the meantime, enjoy this chat with Chris. He is a delight. I can't wait for you to hear. Uh, get into it. Hello? Chris Cows. Hi. Hey, buddy. Thank Look you. at you. Thank you for waiting for me. Waiting? Oh, no. I. Well, first of all, don't you love canceled plans? I wasn't going to cancel, but I was like, I think I can move us up half an hour. And then if you're anything like me, the evening is sort of my favorite time. I'm very, I can be anxious in the afternoons, but yeah. my glorious evening can be so special. So I was like, oh, if we move this to 2.30, we can get to that sort of candlelight, movie time, popcorn sort of uh, special thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. this is perfect for me. It's nice to see you. Good to see you too. I, you have short <laughs> hair. That's, I feel like that's the status symbol of the quarantine is if you are somehow managing to stay uh, groomed. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's the symbol of how reckless you're being. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had a haircut. I've had a haircut. Uh, we did it outside and I, all that. Yeah, I've had haircuts outside. I was cutting my hair for a while, but yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, didn't look great. Good for you. Good for you. Well, we're recording. I I, I know you, you told me you've listened a few times. It's always sort of a, su- a surprise that we just start. I hope that's okay. No, that's great. I know you're coming from therapy. How was it? <laughs> it was incredible. Was it? I really wanted to be just like destroyed for the beginning of this. I wanted to come to you weeping. Just, I wanted you to help me finish what I had started. And <laughs> it was kind of a, eh, it wasn't one of my, it wasn't a, it wasn't a memorable one. Oh, it wasn't. You and for us, but it was, it was sort of just a, I know how that goes. Val, I, I no longer see my therapist regularly, although I did for many years. And um, we'll we'll do checkups. So that's actually possible. It can you can get to a point where you really do just call him when you set something up. If you're going like for me back in the day, uh, well, who am I kidding? It would still be now. If you're going home for the holidays or something, you want a little checkup yeah. uh, before seeing family or whatever. Um, so that is possible. But Val still sees a there uh, sees a wonderful therapist, and when she's fresh from a session, we often have just like really great you know like meaning like they get you practiced in like saying what's true yeah 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 wouldn't you say because you're on the clock you're paying for it so when someone says like how are you you go like i'm anxious every time i eat lunch you know i'm still really really new to therapy oh i still feel like not good at it yet and i am constantly being like what are we supposed to do here or like i Sometimes it feels a little inauthentic to me because it's like, this is when therapy is, this is the time it's at, you know, open your Zoom and let's do it. And I'm not always like in the headspace to be like, I'm having trouble. You know, it feels like I'm turning yeah. off a switch, you know? Um, I think that's... Sometimes I'm ready to go. And then sometimes I'm like, yeah, it feels like I'm getting in character or I'm having to like 
You are. You know, you're anxious. And I'm like, I am, but like, I don't want to fucking talk about that again. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I relate to everything you just said. One, I used to really like the drive to therapy because that's when I would get in character. That's what you don't get on the Zoom. That's right. You just open a thing and you're like, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what to talk about. Like, I could totally see that. Yeah, well, you, because, and I started therapy during during this pandemic. So I only know Zoom therapy. But I can uh-huh. imagine that if you're going to therapy before work, for example, you have the drive to prepare and then you go to therapy and then you have the drive back from it, which is annoying in itself because it takes up more of your day, but you yeah. can think about what's happening. And I've noticed, I mean, this is probably my fault, but I've noticed now if I have like therapy at two, I am like working on a phone call until one fifty nine. I open my Zoom. She's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. You're fucking interrupting me. What do you want? Yeah. I, like, Zoom. I don't reflect at all. And then I go right back to work. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's not what therapy is supposed to be. I completely, completely, completely relate. I, I wouldn't, I would do it the same way too. I, I know that there's like a higher selves version of us that we would be like, oh, let's take 30 minutes to quietly reflect. You know what used to really benefit from a drive or a commute too was a writer's room for me. Okay. It was all it was always the drive to the office and the drive back from the office where the best work got done. Uh-huh. And the writer's room always seemed like a hang. And then in the car it would all process, sort of like sleeping or something. I wonder That's if you found that. Do you oh, find yeah. that? Well yeah, you have the drive where you're like, okay, when I'm quiet with myself, what is really sticking what do i yeah. really remember is like this uh, this is funny but what is memorably like what works how yeah. is it really going to piece together yeah there's a lot of times where i really love something or honestly where i really hate something or, or don't think it's going to work or i'm hard on the idea and then i sleep on it and i'm like ah, you were just being hard on the idea because you're neurotic but with a good right. effort, it, it works and this is good and yes it's so funny i wonder if you relate i have like sort of two gears one where i see infinite potential you could mm-hmm. pitch me the worst idea in the world, mm-hmm. but if I'm in that place, I would just know that you're full of potential. I'm full of potential. Mm-hmm. When we get there, we'll figure it out. And like, I'll, you could be like, it's a show where like some horrible thing. I don't want to pitch a bad thing. <laughs> or I'll be overly critical and I'll be like, well, nothing works. And it's taking me a long time to figure out like neither of those is true. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's sort of in between those two things. I, I just... Yeah. I know I struggle with that too, of trying to be, especially when you start a new project, you're like trying to come up with a new idea or something. Yeah. You'd be very open. Like anything is possible and let's just shoot the shit. And, and then I my the other part of my brain that's very like anal OCD obsessive is like, no, we got to find the thing. And I don't know right. if it's gonna work. So I do have a tendency sometimes to, with my writing partner, be like, I don't know if that's going to work. And her being like, hold on a sec, let's, Let's, yeah. you know, I get very like, well, how does it, what is, what is the end? <laughs> She's like, I yeah. don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. I don't know yet. Which is you, how I'm in therapy too sometimes where I'm like, how does this work? What is this supposed to be? I'm very like goal oriented where they're like, chill out, dude. We're just talking. <laughs> it It is the process. I'm yeah. going to tell you something so stupid. I hope you like it. I was watching the movie Gigli because it's quarantine. I like it. And- What's it? I like it so far. Uh, we were like, let's see it. It's supposed to be so bad. How could it be that bad? It is pretty bad. Uh, I mean, it is bad. But like, 
maybe I've even said this on the podcast before, I'd be embarrassed, but there's this scene where Christopher Walken is playing a detective and he is interrogating somebody that he thinks might have committed a crime, as detectives do. And you notice that he's sort of not really focused. He's sort of just shooting the shit. He's eating chips. He's asking irrelevant questions. And I had this like creative, what felt like an epiphany, where I was like, that's it. You don't go right at it. You allow as much information as you can into your subconscious. How were they acting? How were they sitting? Did they seem irritable? Did they seem whatever, on edge? And you let that go into your sub-rational mind, and that's where your theories are actually born. And in in a similar way, even though neither of us are writing right now, I feel like we are writing, like it's coming in, like this is where those moments are fueled, where you're writing a script and you're like, I don't even know where that came from. What came from this? It came from like those moments where you're not just saying, did you murder the guy? You're saying like, you take the bus today or like the absent-minded investigator is actually doing it good. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. And I feel like sometimes in my experience, sometimes I do that to a fault where I, because like when you're writing your cover, when you're trying to come up with an idea, you, there's no like, well, I'm going to write from nine to five, at least for me. It's like, you are pulling ideas from wherever a casual conversation you have with a friend and experience you, yes. the things you tend to keep thinking about over and over again. But I, I do it to a fault sometimes where it's hard for me to turn my, my brain off. Like even during therapy specifically, like as they're talking, I'm like, that's really interesting. This is an interesting scene that's happening. And I'm like, no, shut oh, up. Oh no, my God. Like, there's a moment. So I rewatched other people this afternoon. It was afternoon. A, yes, it was a pleasure. Oh, so your your heart is open from therapy, Chris. I really want to give you a compliment. I was watching it and I just went like tears in my eyes. Not at a sad part. It was in New York. It's when we're meeting his boyfriend and stuff. And I just went life, life. <laughs> like just sort of missing. Oh my god! Going to like UCB, but it's not just because I miss that stuff. It's because the movie so authentically captures something that I think is really hard to capture, which is the feeling of a shitty Bushwick apartment and the feeling of going, your parents coming to see your improv team and your, and and your uh, significant other and all this stuff. And I was like, it's so real. And one of the things that made me think you and I might be similar is there's the scene where he's ordering milkshakes and, and he says, I'll have three medium chocolate milkshakes, no whip. And he says, okay, what size? I know you know this scene. I'm saying yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, medium. And he goes, whipped cream? And he goes, no whip. And he goes, uh, and what flavor? And he mm-hmm. goes, chocolate. My whole life, I felt like, and this is, I feel like, the first earmark that you might be a comedian or a writer mm-hmm. or or just a this kind of person, is... When I worked at a movie theater, I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. People would come in and they'd say, two seniors. And I'd say, what movie? And they'd say, seniors. This would happen. And I'd be like, yes, but which movie? Seniors. And I'd just say, $8 or whatever it was. It was was very cheap in this town. Um, And that to me was, I was like, I think Chris goes through life not letting those ordinary funny moments go by, but it does come at a price, right? I mean, you're, you're constantly paying attention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. come at a price. Just, just noticing them constantly. Yeah. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, like a balance of noticing them constantly and, model, and then trying, I don't know, like noticing them constantly 
and then trying to enjoy them and know that they're funny so that you don't get frustrated by them. And so you allow yourself a kindness to these people who are annoying you. You know what I mean? That's right. Oh God, it's, it's just funny. It's not frustrating. But then you, you sort of redeem it in a way by putting it in the movie. Like, and yeah. that's, that's how I feel when I'm laughing at that scene in that movie if you could see me, I would have to think you would feel less crazy for thinking that that's like <laughs> yeah, a, a weird moment in a day where some people would just be like also phoning it in and being like, I don't know, chocolate. Like, like they just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I don't, I really want to give, uh, I thought we could talk about the movie by way of talking about your life. Okay, sure. uh, because I feel like in covering the movie and me gushing about the movie, we'll just hit some of the the great moments in the life in in your life and in the in the film as well. Um, I don't think it'll spoil the movie. I really think everybody needs to go out and watch. It's called Other People uh, with the incredible Jesse Plemons. How? Let's start there. How excited were you oh that Jesse Plemons played you? I. I don't want to give you a regular press interview, by the way, but like that one, we have to talk about that one. That's that's fucking excited. great. I was very nervous. Well, I was nervous, not that he was playing me, but that I was in, supposed to direct him. Yeah. Because I was like, this is a, I think this is like a real actor. You know, he yeah. doesn't come from the comedy world. He knows what, like, he's going to see right through me or I've got to really be in character as a real good director because he'll yeah. know I'm not. Yeah. Um, I yeah. felt that for, um, for John Early, obviously John Early is an incredible yeah. actor. Yeah, so is Zach. Everyone's a good actor. But right, you know, everyone's a good actor, and so that's not to diminish the other people. <laughs> but um, <laughs> like John Early and Zach Wood, some of those people are more in my world that I that's know right. or relate to more. I was nervous for Zach. I think he kills it, but there's moments where I'm like. To me, Plemons is like our, he's like our, uh, he's going to be our De Niro. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I, I think that's not an overstatement. And here he is like this serious actor. If I was acting with him, I'd be like, you, you see all my stupid no, tricks. We, I think we all had moments like that. I think I remember me and John early being like, oh my God, can you believe Jesse Plemons is right over there? And <laughs> I think we all were like, this is so crazy. Okay. Anyway, get back. We have to go do the movie now. Like, it, yeah. He felt insane that he was in it. But then some, I think everyone feels that way about everyone because then Jesse, Jesse talked later about how nervous he was to act across from Molly Shannon, that he idolized her when he was little, that he loved her on Saturday Night Live, that he thought she was the funniest. And so he had out-of-body experiences, like sitting on the bed next to her, watching her and being like, I feel like I'm in a sketch with Molly Shannon. Oh, wow. Just the sad, the saddest sketch. Although (laughs) I do want to say, man, and uh, here's a specific compliment. It is a movie about losing a parent, Mm -hmm. but like it never, um, it does both. It, it faces it baldly and honestly, but it always gives you some relief just like I feel like a family hopefully can do for one another when they're going through something like that. There's always like a hilarious scene talking about cremation. I think Molly Shannon is a revelation in that scene and it's really, really funny. And um, I mean, your dad, uh, how am I blanking on his name? Bradley Whitford. I Bradley Whitford, who I love. You cannot like him and still be like, but I like you. I like this guy. He's all right. So here, here's my first uh, question um, about the movie, which will really just get to your life. And we can leave the movie as much as, as we can. I mean, I've there's never... a lot of overlap. 
<laughs> that that's what I'm hoping. I mean, if somebody asked me about crashing, which we worked on together, yeah, yeah. that would be a novel way to talk yeah. about your life. So yeah. instead of me being like, what was that? But um, you say something that is so close to me. So this might seem kind of absurd and like a shocking or jokey way to start. But the thing I related to so hard was, would you tell the people about your mahogany desk and, and how the real version of this? Oh, yes. <laughs> you from my real life. I mean, I don't know what part is true, but that was basically my real life. Yeah. So. <laughs> the thing is, I also don't know what part is true anymore. That is the weirdest thing with making a movie that's your life, mostly, with the little changes, is now I am like, wait, wait which part is true did this happen or did i change it because like on the day we didn't have like i really do sometimes struggle with what is real do you have that i oh i was gonna say this is therapy for us because i have that too where it starts to blur where you're like the episode you directed i'm like yeah right after my divorce i went on the road with Artie lang no you no you didn't that that was not real it just felt so real especially when you're shooting in the real locations with the real people you're just like your brain i mean when we're old when we're really old you're just gonna say i remember when i was a blonde young man (laughs) like you're gonna be jesse plemons in your memory it's so bizarre and it's such a I, I guess I never thought this would be something that would happen when I was making the movie. I was so, just so grateful to be able to like make this and to tell this story that's based on something that happened to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that is like a weird repercussion of it where I don't, and I tried to stay really true to what, what really happened in my real life. Yeah. I was like, you know, this needs to be a documentary, but usually, you know, when in doubt, what's the true thing and i think comedy is funnier and it's based on reality about all that stuff so there's so much of it that is identical to what happened that then there's also things that change and so it really makes it hard to remember which specifics are true and which aren't well let's talk about the mahogany desk with full permission to just yeah 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 So I'm even, okay, so I think in real life I'm gay. I know I'm gay in the movie. I think in real life I'm also gay. I know, <laughs> um, so the mahogany desk thing, I don't even know what all, so I, when I was eight, I think, I remember for Christmas, I asked for a mahogany desk for Christmas and they didn't know I was gay with that request. They, you thought that was no. I just want to say, if Val were here, she would laugh. My favorite thing to – I pause movies and I go, the restraint. I love restraint in movies. So in that moment, worst script, you say to your boyfriend, when I was eight, I asked for a mahogany guest, uh, mm-hmm. desk. The joke that nine writers out of ten would write is, and they didn't know you were gay. Yeah. The line is – of course you asked for a mahogany desk. Oh, and I, well, ew, I hate talking about writing, but I, that, um, <laughs> ew. <laughs> I, no, no, but I also don't remember if I wrote that or if that was a note that Zach gave, which was like, he should say, of course. I think it was written like you asked for a mahogany desk. And I think Zach said he, of course, to imply intimacy. I loved it. Well, that of course he did. That kind of I love it. But um, you let, you let the joke go by. Yeah, but what's fun is we the world is so real we're all kind of making the joke we all know like yeah. of course he was a gay man and 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 he wanted him yeah, you're right you're right i was eight and i was a gay man true <laughs> <laughs> i was as old then as i am now i felt 40 <laughs> since i was 14 i swear to god that's that's a real 
earmark of my life. I know. I remember being in elementary school, like playing with kids, being like, what are we doing? Playing with kids? <laughs> I wanted to gossip. I wanted to I wanted to talk about feelings. I wanted to like get into it. I did want to joke around and do jokes and stuff. But like I don't know, playing soccer seemed really dumb. Yes. I, I remember be playing at a park and being like we're all just playing at a park. This is what you want to do? <laughs> okay, I'm out of here you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I bet the mahogany desk was that was I asked for a, a giant L-shaped mahogany desk for my bedroom. And it was so enormous that it was like took up every you couldn't you just walked in and then there was the desk that it took up the whole room. <laughs> I asked for that from Santa. And then my my mom asked what I wanted for like stocking stuffers. And I asked for like pledge and rags so that I could like clean the desk. <laughs> it's not it's not i could feel my parents being like cool 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 yeah we get the desk anything else and i was like yeah pledge rags Uh, (laughs) (laughs) even desperately searching for like anything straight that i wanted Uh, that's where i would hide my my pornography when i was little i don't know if that's what you're referring to that is but your pornography was clips from jc penny yeah, my pornography. So this was like late 90s. So I was too scared to Google porn. Like, you know, when you would Google, like, I remember things like I would Google like George Clooney, no shirt. And then I would <laughs> see a photo and I'd be terrified. There was like a bread, there was like a paper trail. I, I didn't know how to it worked enough, you know, where you're like, okay, I'm done that. I, I closed out of that search. Can someone see that I did Oh this? my God. My older brother, we had an Apple 2GS or something in the in the antique room. Uh, and I went to my version of George Clooney, no shirt. I typed in, I didn't even Google it because there was no Google, bigfakeboobs.com. <laughs> I just went to bigfakeboobs. I had to take you somewhere, right? <laughs> it, took me to, it took me to bigfakeboobs.com. But... <laughs> Just like you, I was flooded with like guilt and immediate. I, I wasn't even uh, masturbating. I just was curious and looking, and uh, and then my brother was like, "Bigfakeboobs.com, dude," and I was like mortified that someone had found it, and I should have been. I didn't know that the internet had a record, but of course, he typed in B. He's probably going to some reasonable site, and bigfakeboobs.com filled in. I, I, I can't. I, yeah. And I would wait because we only had a one family computer. It was like downstairs. That's this right out in the open. So it's like, I am fucking just, it's, I am playing with fire baby. And I would do it before my parents got home from work. And then if I heard the garage door open, that was when I was like, I got to close out of this shit quick. Oh my God. I remember, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but I remember around that time too, there were always like, I remember one day there was a very special Oprah episode and my mom always came home from work and watched Oprah. And I remember on one of the Oprah episodes, they were like tomorrow, a very special episode. Could your kids be seeing in, in like horrible things online, how to check and see. And I was like, we've got to keep mom busy tomorrow at four. You cannot watch this episode. So I was just frantically like, mom, come here. I need to ask you a question or we need to, I just was like, she can't watch this because then she'll look and she'll find George Clooney, no shirt or naked or whatever. Oh. Oh my I, god! I just lived in terror that they would. I would be outed. Yeah. And so my only porn was on Sunday. The newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, had like advertisements, color advertisements for Kmart and J.C. Penney and Mervins, and occasionally, especially during the summer. Oh god, the summer was where it was at. 
the winter was tough, but uh, <laughs> bulky yeah, snowsuits, yeah. not, not too hot. Yeah, yeah. But during the summer, Mervins would occasionally like you know, have swimsuit ads and it would just be a tiny grainy little Mervyn's photo of a man standing fully straight ahead, wearing like a bathing suit, like down to his knees. And yes. it would be an inch tall, grainy. And I would jerk off it to it for a year and a half. I, yeah. would, I was like, I, I would look at this little flat standing straight ahead body. So sexless, truly nothing. Like, like when I would see one, when I, some weeks there weren't from, and then some weeks that he would be there and I'd be like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And I would t- cut it out and I would throw the rest of the paper away and I would throw the rest of the paper away, like way down the block. So the paper trail was far away and I would use it. And then I would hide it in the back of my desk. And this is a little collection of, of, um, of um, swimsuit men back there. <laughs> I was so, the goal was that in case my parents saw it, I could maybe argue it away that I was looking for a new swim. I don't know what I thought I was doing. I totally relate. Absolutely relate. <laughs> and it's the destruction of it. You you mentioned in the in the movie that you would soak them and rip them into pieces and throw them in different. I did that too. This yeah. is when I was like, it, it sounds like you grew up religious. Yes, you think? <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> and this this bonds us. Even it doesn't matter, gay, straight, sexuality. I know it's different, but like sexuality is just bad. And and I felt that I, I can't I can't like. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say it's the same. No, but no, like, no. The level of shame just to have a sex drive. So I would, if I used something like the Sears catalog or when I found my dad's um, Playboy calendar, I would soak it, uh, rip it, and I would walk it, Chris, I'd walk it miles from the house to throw it away. And this is in the movie. And I was just like, it's the exact same thing I did. It's the exact same thing. And I was like, if it's you and it's me, I think it's pretty universal. Because it's like, it might be in the ballpark of OCD. We have nothing else really going on, but we were also told that God is going to send us to hell for this stuff. So it's this like ritualistic catharsis and a fear that my mom or even my brother would catch me as my, as my mom did once. I remember I had like a punk rock magazine and I accidentally left it open and it wasn't, it was just like, like riot girls, you know, and you could kind of see see their underwear and they had bass guitars and stuff. And she just said, it really hurt my feelings. She was like, do you find those girls attractive? And I was like, and I was like, no, no, get out of here. Meanwhile, like the curve of a banana was enough to get me like insanely horny. Of course. I was like, if I see as a gay person, I wouldn't be seen eating a banana because I was worried it would make people think about, I would, I was worried that it would make people think about a dick. And then, oh, of course. I truly was like, I just, yeah. I don't know why I thought that, but I was no. like on high alert for like what is going to make people think of me liking men. Of course, there there was a, a a Christian college, and I got confirmation on this. I can't remember the name of it, but somebody at my Christian college transferred from a school where it wasn't in the student handbook, but there was like a, another set of bylaws that were like written down elsewhere. 
uh, harder to find. And one of them was like, women are to cut up bananas when eating them. Like, don't eat them in their full phallus, basically. That's so funny. God. Uh. So you're not alone. People are like, it, it looks like a, it looks like a penis. So you, you look weird. But t- tell me what that was like. I mean, your your sexuality showed up when? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, for you. I don't I don't remember. I think I kind of always knew. I don't remember. I don't I don't know. I don't even mean your your preference, but just like the high, like when you started feeling like the manifestations uh, of it. Well, yeah, at eight, I was asking for that desk. So you know, I, I don't know. I, like, I, I can't separate what was like, I was gay. I was fastidious. I was a writer. I was like, there like overlap. But I remember like kindergarten, I was already writing like little books. The, you know, those pieces of paper where you can draw on the top and then write on the bottom. Of course. My but favorite I, things. I would write like when all the kids in kindergarten were playing, I would sit alone and write books. And then I would ask to go give them to the principal. Like I'd written a book for a principal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's technically gay but i also think it's only gay i think it's definitely gay so it's it's, it's just like the combination of like a little gay businessman <laughs> yes no i understand and again i relate i i i had a joke i don't i hope it would live stand up mm-hmm. uh, it was called how am i not gay and i would just list all these things that i did that were what you're saying fastidious uh, yeah. um creative all my friends were girls yeah, I'm talking in like those second, third grade, kindergarten, whatever. I traded stickers like scratch and sniff and oilies. But like it was the girls that were like like listening to one another in a way that the boys <laughs> weren't. Yeah. So like if you wanted to be like a showman, if you wanted and that's all I wanted to do is like put on little plays and I, I wrote I wrote movies too. Yeah, seventh yeah. seventh grade I wrote and shot a movie with my friend. This is very like Let's not say gay because that's what we would have said in the eighties. That's very gay. I'm saying it's very theatrical yeah, and it's yeah. and it's very grown up. But I'm I'm completely with you yeah. on all of that stuff. So like you were an outlier. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> I I think I knew I was gay from a very young age, and I didn't obviously want to be. And I was raised so deeply religious that I I mean not to nosedive and make this so sad but i would literally pray at night like just 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 make me not gay um, yeah yeah but i also wasn't like not wanting to be gay that i wasn't acting on i was like jacking off to guys every goddamn night i was like horny for everyone i like i was still you know but uh yeah can i just i just have to say this is the same cognitive dissonance that i had i would have stood up at a podium and and preached fire about lust. I loved oh. leading Bible studies about lust and 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 vanquishing it from a and and I would pray constantly not to not be straight, but not to not be constantly horny. Like oh yeah. I couldn't even I, I my fantasy was just like I'm gonna be a weird guy uh, that walks around shirtless with a margarita with a mustache and like Jay Leno I just have a wall of pornography that I just let like I wasn't even ashamed of it but like then the rest of the time I was denouncing it just like you yeah. see just I like mean, you see when I was in ninth grade my dad ran for a state assembly as the like most conservative in the race. So he was like the family values candidate. So oh, I wow. my weekends like going door to door with like little flyers being like, vote for my dad. 
this is his platform. He's anti-abortion. He's pro-family values. He's anti-gay. Just like going door to door being like, vote for this anti-gay candidate. After you had home and get those little spin suits. (laughs) (laughs) It was a real like Batman Bruce Wayne lifestyle. (laughs) I I can't. It it really is a strange thing that we have in common to split your brain into. I know we all have two hemispheres, but to compartmentalize like that's how you appear. And but this is what you really what you really want. And Yeah, yeah. You have to survive. And I I really didn't. It's weird because I have memories of praying, like, I wish I wasn't gay. Please make me not gay. But then I also have very clear memories of, like, I was still decently popular at school and I did well and I had friends. And I wasn't like um, like a sad little gay kid who was, you know, picked on or anything like that. So I still very much felt like, on the one hand, I would pray to be like, I wish I wasn't gay. But there was still a part of me that was like, just hang in there until you're 18. And then I think you'll be fine. Like, I think you will be fine. And I think you will be okay. And I think you will like not, you know, if you can just get past the scaredness of your parents and your dad. And like, I think if you can just win, you can just get to the end of this race and you'll, you'll be home free when you're an adult. And I I think you'll be okay. I have that knowledge. Yeah. You had it gets better before we had it gets better. I mean, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. I started it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I told you I wanted to come on the podcast and take credit for that. (laughs) No, but I kind of had this sense. I was like, I I don't know. I just remember being like, hold your breath and like, get this done, get high school done, get out of there. You had to be getting it somewhere like movies. Did you have supportive friends? Like I sort of got it from my mom, even though the church was giving me a pretty good, uh, your dick is evil kind of uh, mainline of that sort of info. My mom, I could always tell that she sort of saw past it and was like, you'll be fine. Like once, once you get out there, you'll, you'll be all right. And you'll figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my mom was less fire and brimstone about the gay thing, though she was still religious. I didn't have any support in in the gay, in terms of gayness, you know, like I didn't tell anyone, no friend was like, if you are, it's okay. Um, In retrospect, so many of the ones that you're like, I wonder if that kid's gay. Yes, he was, but we never talked about it in high school. So I, I didn't feel like I had any sort of, outlet or any I had no reason to believe this when I was younger I think I more felt I I started to like writing and acting and performing and I felt confident in like oh I want to write and be a comedy writer writer type person I'm gonna go do that and I think that will maybe that gave me confidence and more than like I'll be okay gay wise I, I don't know yeah, that's interesting. I I, I, or I think I was just like, I don't really believe in this religious stuff. I don't think I think my dad is right. I don't want to be in this town. I think if I can get out, I can find a, I can take a different turn. So you just gotta, yeah. you just gotta smile and get good grades and not let anyone see your swimsuit men, and then we'll figure it out when we're eighteen. <laughs> You're sort of making me feel romantic about that time where you do have a very vivid inner world as a child. Like, you you know, and you use this language in your movie and it's like, you're sort of putting on a play, you know, like you were saying in therapy, you play the role of the patient and you sort of have to get into character and you sort of play the role of the son and you play the role of the student. But then those little swimsuit men, or in my case, the really kind of strange women of (laughs) bigfakeboobs.com, 
they were sort of like confidants. They were sort of like, beside just the the release, there was like a whispering of like, we know you're okay. Like real, real deep down. And just like you, I was like, I think if I get into comedy, of course I got married, but like, if I get into comedy, the world will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and Uh more and more colorful, more and more inclusive. And this isn't to say we had the same thing. I'm very interested in, in, in your parents. And this is the only question I'm going to ask. That's a mild spoiler about the movie, but is Bradley Whitford wearing some sort of like sexy underwear in his white pants? You've never gotten this question. Sexy underwear. Chris. What are you talking? What scene? Chris Kelly. This is gross. He plays my dad. How many times have you watched your own movie? Wait, How many? Wait, is Bradley Whitford, who plays my dad, did I put him in sexy underwear on purpose is the question? It seems like a big... What sort le- of podcast is this? <laughs> what kind of operation hear, are you running? Hear me out. We just got our, our, our clickbait title. I literally thought it was a gag, like a joke. And so did that. It's the scene where you, Stroke, uh, Jesse Plemons, are sitting at the top of the stairs. Okay. Your dad is wearing white pants. Okay. We've already seen him kind of dancing mm-hmm. sort of wild, not wildly, but uh-huh. in a way that's not really in line with his conservative values. He comes upstairs. He asks you if you have any New Year's resolutions. You say you're clearly you don't want to talk to him. And he walks by you and you see Bradley Whitford's uh, buns. <laughs> Chris, I've paused it. It seems like a deliberate gag that oh. you're saying my dad is a closet crossdresser, or perhaps he's a homosexual or I'm something. So, I'm so sad that I, I I have to go watch it back now. That was not intentional. Maybe okay. those are just Brad's underwear. You you need he's wearing like he's wearing seventies pants because I know it was like seventies attire. So and he's wearing seventies women's underwear. <laughs> Must have been wearing like white see-through pants, and then Brad's wearing whatever underwear he was wearing. I have no involvement in. That. I have so many theories now. Now Bradley Whitford, who is another one of our De Niro's, another incredible actor, decided that y- your dad is is sort of kinkier than he lets on. And that is so funny because I've gotten of all the questions I've gotten on this movie, this is a first. I thought for sure you were going to say. Either yes, that was a deliberate joke that oh, no. the people that bark against homosexuality are often protesting too much, God, no. or no, that was just a coincidence or Bradley's idea or whatever. But to think you've never gotten it now, I have to wonder about myself. Yeah, now I want to text and ask him, but I, I'm worried this is like turned the tables on you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here. I really do want to watch it. I do want to watch it. No, I'm going to send you a screen grab right now. I I want vindication so badly. I believe you, but I guess it's either Brad's real underwear and he didn't think anything about it, or... I mean, as, as people in showbiz, <laughs> I believe you, and I'm like, I bet it was just his underwear. But I also kind of just want to take a screen grab of Bradley Whitford's buns. Also, weirdly, the co- I should ask the costume designer this. She won't remember, but the costume designer is my best friend from college, like growing up, and like was one of the few people who worked on the movie who knew my entire family. Oh, really? I don't think she was being like, "I'll make a judgment on the real guy." 
<laughs> okay, I'm watching. I'm watching. Plemons. Plemons. <laughs> you had to shoot out of order, didn't you? Because Molly's hair. Is that true? No, she's wearing a wig. Even when she has short gray? That's a great wig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even then. Great wig. I'm sorry. I hope I'm not putting too much of a halt. I'm at the scene. You're not at I'm all at the scene. by this. I, I hope... <laughs> I, now? I no, uh, I, I know I'm not. This isn't to see if it's there. I know it's there. <laughs> I know it's there, and it, we're we're seconds away. We're seconds away. He's he's passing. He's passing. Oh my god! It's his shirt. Oh my I'm god! Embarrassed. I'm I'm embarrassed. Now I, I turn the brightness up. It's his shirt. It's the way his shirt is tucked in. <laughs> looks like he's wearing these little sort of. Is this he wearing like a colorful shirt? It's a colorful shirt, but it's the way that it's tucked into his white pants, and the outline of the pants really looks like it's a thongish. <laughs> now, a bigger question remains: How much of this, if any, do we keep in this podcast? What's your vote? <laughs> the thing, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, even though. I'm disappointed now. Like, I wish I would have seen it and been like, he's wearing a little thong. Like, I was excited for a weird surprise. I guess my eyes, if you could put me in one of those eye tracking machines, I'm looking at buns whenever they're on the screen. And and I, I'm checking and I laughed and we paused it and we laughed again. And I was like ready to ask you about it. But <laughs> But without, even without, I feel like, Katie, you can trim some of that, but you can leave most of it. It's it's sort of a funny, <laughs> dumb moment. Um, tell me about that, having this dad, because that is the most interesting, um, to me, part of the movie is like dealing, I don't want to say dealing, that sounds kind of condescending to your dad, maybe, but like, tell me what that was like, if you don't mind. The The real experience or like making the movie version of it or... I'd love to let's talk about the real experience and then take it into the movie because there is something beautiful, as I already said, and sort of redemptive Mm -hmm. about making this movie that lots of people are going to see with lots of different sexual identities and lots of different sexual experiences. Just like I felt with your JCPenney story, I felt so seen. But Mm -hmm. here's this dad that you really went out of your way, I feel, and you know, the magic of Bradley Whitford, be wit. Uh, carried a lot of it, but he is likable. He he's funny. He's 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 not just like a he's not like an alcoholic just sitting at the table going like it's not natural or like it's an abomination. He yeah, he's just I, sort of he just sort of sits it out. Tell me tell me the real stuff, and then we can well, get well, into that. Well, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, where it's like I've kind of even forgotten now what is true and what's the movie. Or uh, there there are moments that are exactly what I remember. There are moments that are fudged a little bit for storytelling. There are some things that honestly my mom did that I gave to my dad because it worked better for the character. So it's it's sometimes hard for me to go back and be like, wait, what is true? But by and large, that was my experience. Like, so I grew up in a very like religious conservative household. Being gay was not okay. My dad was not okay with it. My mom wasn't okay with it. My no one was. But it wasn't a fire and brimstone, even though I used that word earlier. It wasn't like ha, you're a writer. But can we can we beat fire and brimstone? <laughs> But it wasn't like it. It wasn't like meanness. You know what I mean? It was pleasant suburban mom and dad who like loved me and who loved all people. But just being gay was not okay. So the way you describe his portrayal in the movie, you know, 
that I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a one-dimensional monster. You know what I mean? Like my parents, my whole family was funny. When I moved back to be with my mom while she was sick, it was awful and sad, but it was also like funny and weird and one of the best years of my life. And Mm. I didn't want the experience to be one-dimensional. I didn't want any character to be one-dimensional. I didn't want like um, the character playing me to be good, the character playing my dad to be bad, you know? Um, Yeah. Uh, it's everything's grayer than that. And I try to remember, and I try to remember this in my real life too, but in the movie that the dad character isn't operating under evil intentions, you know, he's trying to do what's best and he's working off his belief system and he's making decisions and saying things because he thinks he's helping me or he thinks he's doing what's right. And that doesn't like absolve him, but yeah, you can't write characters as like, okay, well, that's the bad guy. So I wanted to make sure, and that's part of why I cast Bradley Whitford, to be honest, and why I was excited he wanted to do it is because he has an inherent charm to him. Yeah. Even in the most difficult scenes where he's kind of being the toughest, you're like, oh, but I do, I am charmed by you. You are funny. You are smart. You are, um, yeah, that was important to me all around. I kind of wanted a lot of improv and comedy people in the movie to kind of loosen up things and make yeah. people lived in and make sure that no dramatic moments felt like dramatic with a capital D that they felt regular human being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you did that brilliantly. Forgive a, a sort of self-indulgent question and it's a leading question. And I might be, I might be Bradley Whitford's panties off. About <laughs> this. But are you just, a great script writer or did someone have to tell you as I've often had to be told that your character also needs an arc. You mentioned you didn't want your character to be perfect. So Uh you need, you have this, like he should spend time with his sisters. He should make an effort. Did you just know that you also needed to pay him off in some way? Uh, Um, or did you get like great notes that people like it? Forgive me, but it, it feels like that's the sort of note I would get. I would write your movie. I, I can't say that I, I, I am able to, but if I wrote it, it would be just like it is, except there would be no closure or growth for your character. He would just your be. Your character the- would just be like, and I was right all along. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was okay. I told you all, Doris Lamb. And, and you get the show that you're submitting for, and like you, all the good things happen. Um, it just know. seems like such a. Like, th- those are the types of good notes I've heard where it's like, can we see him grow? Yeah. Um, I don't remember getting that as a note. I think I just spent a lot of time before I wrote the script being like, what do I want to say? Or like, it was the first long form thing I'd ever written. I, I'd written, I was at SNL when I wrote it. So I'd been writing sketches and stuff, but I'd, re- I'd never really written anything longer than that. And so I spent a lot of time just brainstorming. First of all, I didn't know I was going to write about my mom dying, but then I kind of went with the adage of write what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I spent a whole summer just sort of, like walking around and listening to music and kind of being like, what about this time do I want to write about? Or um, kind of free writing, just anything I remember from that time whatsoever, big, small, dumb, stupid. Um, I remember writing down Drops of Jupiter because I felt like that song was like fucking everywhere. Like, and I remember writing down Drops of Jupiter and being like, I don't know if I'm writing down too much stuff. Like this is nothing. And then the more you just write and you don't edit yourself, the more you're like, how funny that I keep mentioning this song. Oh, then that sticks with you, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I I noticed like little moments and I I kind of felt like after weeks and months of writing, 
that the things I would keep writing or the things I would keep thinking about, or when I go on a walk, I would really remember a couple benchmarky things. And then I use those to kind of shape the story. Um, Like I remember responding a lot to the idea of um, like, I, I love movies and television and that's how I experience a lot of things in real life. Like if I experience something, I'm like, Oh, this is like that movie where, or, you know, um, you know, if I'm like at a party, I'm like, Oh, this is like a party scene in a TV show, you know? So I, <laughs> when I went back to go live with my mom as she was dying of cancer, I'm like, God damn, I'm in one of these. Like I've seen these every year. Yes. Um, yes. So looking for my ending as I was living it, I was looking for my beautiful scene. I, I was very aware. I was like, Oh, I'm in the hospital scene right now. Interesting. This is different than I thought it was going to be or the same or funnier or, um, that's one of the gifts of storytelling. It's like when you're in it, you know you're not alone. Like you have a reference. It's one of the reasons I think we love stories. You were going to say, sorry. No, no, I, would just, I was using that as a reference point. And I remember at one point I was home with a friend of mine who John Early plays being like, I do feel like I'm in this movie. I've seen this movie. They've been done to death. Um, but it doesn't feel like it. It's not, I'm not learning anything. I'm not having a moment. It just sucks. And it's like, honestly boring. This whole month has been boring or different than I thought. And um, I I just remember looking for this like quote unquote lesson. Um, And I remember also later talking to my mom and um, diarrheaing to her, all of my worries and her just, well, you know, I I was like, I did my relationship had fallen apart. I wasn't doing well uh, career wise a version of this is in the movie, but a really good friend of mine had gotten SNL like the day before I didn't get it, but like, thank God. Cause I couldn't have done it anyways, but I just felt like, Oh, everything's bad. And I, I was diarying. I don't want to say selfish things cause everyone's problems are their own, but she just said, I don't care about any of this. I, I wanted her to know I was going to do well, that I was doing bad now, but if she died and I was, she died in the middle of me being a bad loser, that she needed to know that I was going to be a successful somebody and happy. <laughs> and she was like, I don't care. Just take care of your sisters. And I remember that hitting me at the time. And so then years later, as I was thinking about what the movie was about, I just, re- you know, I just remembered little conversations and uh. together into a narrative that way. So I don't really know how I did it or approached it other than just remembering things that, no, that you got the note from your mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't mean the note. You got the moment that gave you the idea. I mean, like, it, it, I think it, yeah. I feel like it's rare on this podcast or just in my life to to talk to a writer and be like, "That's the moment." Of course, it has to end in you realizing that you can and are able to and are willing to live on with her in your sisters, yeah. which which you do really beautifully in in the movie. Um, I think that's a great answer. I love that answer. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Good. Okay. I think you're good answer. Good. It's to talk about because I don't, I don't know, and it's been a while now, so it, it it's hard to remember how. No, I understand, but there's other other choices that I'll make you think about that are hard to remember. Like, <laughs> like if you're writing this movie, it's like, where do you start? Right. The movie is very lean, and and that's one of the hardest things I I think to accomplish without feeling forced. The the bad pitch is we meet you, we meet your boyfriend, you break up, uh, you're not getting jobs. We see all this in New York. We're in New York. You're at 30 Rock. You're dropping off your thing. Someone's rude to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cab splashes you, all this stuff. And then you get the call. And now we're at 15 minutes in the movie. Mom has cancer. It's like, 
to start and you're already home. We don't have the flight. We don't have the finding out. It's like a really good storytelling technique that for a first time writer, I'm just giving you a compliment. It's like, start, start the story. The story is about the year at home. Yeah, that's nice. And I, I don't say this to be like, Wow, so I'm very good. But I did get a note because so the movie does start right away with like a locked off shot from above of the whole family laying there while she dies. Um, and it's like pretty kind of like I wanted it to be just kind of a rough blunt, like, oh, <laughs> uh, this I kind of knew this movie was about this, and here we are. Yeah. And she truly dies, and you hear the death rattle, and she dies, and they're sobbing, and it's kind of violent and bad. And then there's a quiet, and then you hear a phone ring, and a woman leaves a voicemail. Um, <laughs> saying her condolences that she heard she was sick, but then you realize she was in the Taco Bell drive-thru and she stopped and she's like a hot cubine and she's burritos. And you hear this long voicemail of her ordering burritos at a drive-thru <laughs> and the whole family can hear it while they're laying over their mom's dead body. So <laughs> that my goal with that is, yeah, it isn't linear. Like you said, where it's like, he's in New York and then he gets the call that she's sick and then she moves home. And I did get the note right before we shot, somebody had pitched, I think we should just start with him on the plane going home. Uh. give away that she died because the movie is about you know does she die and i was like no that is not what the movie's about the movie is she dies you're not going to do anything about it this is what's happening she dies she dies she dies right what are you going to do until she dies what do you do after she dies so i wanted to get that out of the way and be like she's going to die it's going to suck this phone call hopefully teaches you it's going to be funny yes here we go but Chris, yeah. I'm going to carve you an Academy Award out of so. No, that really, I, that example feels like God. And so what a fantastic decision on my part. But Oh, no, but it is. No, you're just, you're just guessing when you make something. You're like, not guessing. Like, you know, Somebody think- gave Arthur Miller the note, call it life of a salesman. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, do you have to say he dies? And you're like, but I really wanted to talk to you about this. Because one of the things that the movie does and i understand it was a play first and the play was called hey i heard you're dying it was called oh my god i heard you're dying and it was oh my god it was like a, a show at ucb i did and it was a series of little vignettes that were just about it was like six or seven characters in a row kind of coming in and saying goodbye to a person on their deathbed and there was oh, wow. like a, little, a dummy laying on a bed and it wasn't the story of my mom it wasn't the movie exactly but some of the jokes were in there like that phone call was in was in the. <laughs> I almost said when you said there's a dummy on the bed, I'm like, who books that? Um, can I be can I be the dummy? Um, one of the things the movie seems to be about, and for even for going the movie, one of the things that I feel like is interesting to you and very interesting to me is death. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's happening. And um, it, again, you've told me that you listen to the show, so it shouldn't be a surprise that I bring up Ramdas. Ramdas worked a lot with dying people, and one of his role as this like groovy spiritual guy was to be the person that came in and said, "So you're dying." Mm-hmm. Like he, he. I, I don't mean everyone should go around and doing that, but he sort of they asked for him to come, and that his thing, and and he wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't ashamed and he didn't want, as your character in in the movie says, to put on the play like, but she's better, right? Mm -hmm. Like, again, it's not the same, but I remember actually being outside UCB. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not true. I was waiting for a train and I ran into somebody and my wife had just left me. And I said, 
they said how's and they they said her name and I was like um we were actually uh she left we're divorced and she said and it's I'm not faulting her she without missing a beat said but you're okay <laughs> she just like that's what you seem to capture in the movie is there's this like it's almost like I went to the doctor recently I I I uh, I wanted to get something checked out and it, it was like the sort of thing that could be like, oh, you're, you're this is horrible news. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really worried, but you know, you, you went and yeah. I don't care. I, I, I did a testicular exam and I was like, I don't like that. Yeah. So I went to my urologist and um, it ended up being nothing. But like, oh, I'm, I sort of lost my train of thought. It's, oh, you get that feeling that you go to the doctor so you can face mortality face the the big abyss face the scary unknown but then he stamps your pass mm-hmm. your freedom pass mm-hmm. and he says don't worry that's that's uh it, it ended up just being like a calcification if anybody is listening for updates on my balls it was just like a little nothing and then he stamped my freedom pass and then you can go back out into reality and do whatever the fuck you want because you're not dying and everything's fine. But when you are dying, and this is why it's brilliant that you start with the death and you have to deal with what Ramdas was bringing into the room, so you're dying, mm-hmm. that's where everyone's funny in the hospital. Have you noticed? I, I yeah. know you have. Because life and death is happening. Mm-hmm. Like It's so par for the course that the nurse who takes your blood pressure pressure is funny. We, because, we almost, I almost put this in the movie or it actually was in the movie, but then we cut it for time or it wasn't, it wasn't funny. It didn't work. But in, it, I had a real experience where we went to the hospital one time with my mom and it was not a life or death experience. It was like um, getting her blood drawn or something, but it was while she was sick and it was kooky hat day at the hospital. <laughs> and there were like little eight by 10 paper signs everywhere that was like, wear your kookiest hat. And so all the nurses and doctors had like jester's hats and one had like a little slinky hat. And I was like, what if, I mean, what if so in the movie they go to the hospital once and she's crying and screaming and i read we had like nurses passing by in like slinky hats and it didn't it just it's such a funny joke to me but if you don't do it really well it doesn't work so i understand we we cut around it but i remember being there in the hospital so sad and serious seeing just a woman like fill out a chart with like a little slinky bobbing being like they don't realize this is potentially not the vibe we want absolutely But, but they were funny and upbeat and i don't know that like that combination of energies is um exactly my sweet spot of what i like <laughs> no okay so again i give you my favorite compliment restraint no to let the joke go because it's not gonna it doesn't play yeah, yeah but like that's exactly what i'm talking about so i he goes what year were you born you know he's checking my id and i go 79 and he goes okay you go this way and he goes people who were born 1979 go this way i'm sure this is the joke he makes every day but i'm nervous i'm coming in to to get a test and it made me laugh but when we're reminded of our mortality suddenly you kind of lighten up a little bit you you both get more severe but you also sort of can laugh at like stupid jokes like that because yeah. you you're tense and you and you need some relief and sorry but, i didn't mean to cut you off but, but i that is that is so what i experienced too or even like when my mom was on hospice towards the end and she was assigned you know one or a couple of specific hospice nurses i remember being like who the fuck is choosing to do this every day is your life just an onslaught of 
horror and sadness. And I remember her saying like, yes, it is very sad. And, but it's also, I mean, a gift I can give other people. I'm every day I am doing something that by nature is helping and is like a lovely thing to give someone. And also you'd be surprised at how funny it is and how fun it is and how lovely it is. Like you're seeing families during the worst time of their life, but you're often seeing the best of people. You are seeing them surrounded by loved ones. I mean, there's times when you're, you know, at someone's bedside helping them die and they don't have a huge support system. And that is a bummer. And that is very sad and hard to see. Bummer is such a a not good, a good enough word for that. Uh, I I like that. But oftentimes you're walking into a sad situation, but you're seeing family and friends and loved ones. And so I just remember her being like, it actually like galvanizes me and lifts me up and makes me happy. And she was like, I don't, I don't describe my job as depressing. I think it's like sad, but fun and funny and weird and interesting. And, and I think it's, it's, (laughs) <laughs> it's got to be one of the realest things you can do, meaning yeah, yeah. so much of what we do, especially what we do for work, is just sort of make-believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'll produce your movie, and it's all just sort of yeah. nonsense. I don't mean that yeah, dismissively. But she's, but she's tangibly waking up and going somewhere and doing something and helping someone and then going home. <laughs> doing something. Yeah. And that was the feeling. And, you know, they say sort of cosmically that birth – that when Val went through labor, it's very similar to like a death. Like it's, it's like a death for her and like a rebirth into being a mom. I'm saying somebody else's words because I can't relate necessarily. But when she was going through labor, she's in the tub, Mm -hmm. uh, which they call the midwives epidural. Uh, It does not seem to work as well as a real epidural (laughs) from, from what I could tell. And Val is in the tub and she's on her hands and knees and she's just groaning, you know, like real pain. And it happens every three minutes. So it it is similar to, uh, I haven't been with someone dying, but it's similar in the, it's these waves of unceasing, but even in between these bouts of the worst pain she's felt, I'll never forget it. We had this moment where we were like, this is the, the opposite of looking at our phone. This is the opposite of watching a movie. Like, like you said in the hospital, I am in the movie. Like this is the scene in the hospital. And I think there's a comfort in going like, there's a, there's a poet. I forget who it was. Forgive me. But like, it's a funny poem. He says he fell in a hole. It's in the movie waking life. And Timothy Levitch tells it. Uh, And he goes, I fell in a hole. And as I was falling, I thought, at least something's happening. (laughs) And I was like, I relate to that. Because even though though these things can be so horrible and hospice could be so trying, you are, I hope, seeing people like your mom in the movie says to you, Mm -hmm. don't don't be so stressed. Like, that was so touching to me. And you see a lot of these... um, deathbed, I've read about them, mm-hmm. conversions, and I don't mean to a religious system, I mean they're, the way they see the world is converted, because they realize it's ethereal, and it's and it's passing, and they go like, why is everyone so worked up? Like, why is everyone, you're stressed about getting to the airport? Like, your breath is a gift, your, yeah, yeah. your being yeah. is a gift, and that's that's a real revelation. Yeah. I mean, even hearing you talk about your wife giving birth and obviously it was very painful, but yeah, you you have that moment. And I, and I had it with my mom when she was sick of being like, this is one of the days of my life (laughs) something, you know what I mean? Like, this is a moment. This is one of the, 
like better or for worse, this is one of the, my human days, this is a big real moment. I am in the middle and I will not forget this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That thing of like, I'm falling into a hole, but something's happening. Like this is, um, I've read about this or other people have said that they've gone through this or I've seen this in movies and you're like, Oh my God, I'm literally right now experiencing someone die in front of me, which is awful, but my family's here and I'm living with my mom and, like, I mean, it was terrible. I obviously wish it hadn't happened, but I do always like look back on that year fondly because I wouldn't have been as close to my sisters had I not gone through that. I really got to spend insane quality time with my mom and my dad. And yeah, when someone's sick, you people come, they visit. And so that, that is kind of what I wanted to get across in the movie too. There is a little bit of what you were saying earlier, like people don't know how to grieve and people don't know what to say when um, you're going through a hard time. They're like, but you'll be okay. Right. Or take this or they don't know. And I wanted to make fun of that, not make fun of that a little bit, but have fun at it, that expense. Cause it is, no one knows what the fuck to do. Yeah. And then at the same time, sort of like let them off the hook. Like, I don't know. Like I went through this, I wrote a movie about like how people don't know what to do. Yeah. And I've had friends, parents die since and me be like what am i supposed to do for that like yeah. do i text or call or see you know it's just a weird thing that no one knows no one knows what to do <laughs> but that but that's it I, I i don't even know if you intended this but the title other people is brilliant i know it's you say like you get a diagnosis you go i always thought that happened to other people right mm-hmm. it's simple on that level but the idea that like other people die the purpose of stories, this great unifying quality that your movie really does convey and helps me get into that space, is you're like, it's not other people, it's us. It's all yeah, yeah. of us. Yeah. And and my prayer for my own death is that I could somehow have that adventure spirit, that present spirit where you're like, I'm scared, I don't know what's going to happen, but like, I'm finding out, like it's unfolding yeah. in front of me. Yeah. like. We'll see, but like whether I pass or fail, it, it, it that's not how it works. I see like the value of sharing these stories yeah, because yeah. it does happen to us. It, 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 not to make too much of my doctor visit, it could have happened to me then. You always get that feeling where you're like, it could have happened. I, I got a brain scan and there was a smudge on the scan and they were worried. And I remember vividly, I was in this hotel in New York and there was this... Um, uh, like a coffee, an end table that was mirrored. Uh-huh. I was like, what is this gaudy 80s cocaine end table? But like, I sat there with like, you know, I like to say the needles right on the record, meaning like uh-huh. it was just that moment. That's why I remember it so vividly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I was facing reality the yeah. same reality that we're saying might be a perk not a perk you said bummer is a bad word perk is probably a bad word but it might be one of the hidden values of of working in hospice is because and this is what ramda said is you know i'll be in the presence of truth like nobody can put on a show through yeah. these times nobody can do it perfectly and and there's something sort of Truth is is attractive to us. We want to we want to see it. If if you can get to a place where you can see it, yeah, yeah. I I don't really know if that made sense. I tried. No, it did. Okay, I'm good. just like listening and learning. From like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was like, oh, I'm not an audience. I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always difficult with me because I haven't lost someone close to me, and I remember Kurt Braunohler being on the podcast and talking about how horrible and it wasn't magical 
when his mom died. And, and I want to be respectful of that. But from what I've heard from people who work in hospice and, and, and obviously Ramdas who worked in hospice, there, there's these opportunities. Eckhart Tolle tells this great story about working with a woman who was dying and she became really upset because she couldn't find a ring that she loved. Mm-hmm. And she was paranoid that her housekeeper stole it. And he tells this beautiful story. And she was really, really upset about it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, how much longer do you need with the ring to like let it go? Like it, it became like she was harping on that mm-hmm. because you're letting go of everything. And, and, it, and it was this beautiful very moving story of like, that's what we all have to do. We have to learn to go. It's okay. It, it was, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it's like the Buddhists say the, the, the mug is already broken. The ring is already lost. Yeah. I'm already gone. Like, and, and the more we can get into that scary space of just going like, I'm, I'm free. I'm flowing where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, you can let go of a ring. I, I, I certainly didn't tell it as well as you. No, did. no, no. no. Okay. <laughs> Were you with your mom when she passed? I was. I was. Um, that tableau is in the beginning of the movie. Is what it was. We were. Oh wow. The Those are the exact positions, baby. Um, oh wow. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. I was with her. Yeah, when she died. Yeah, but it is. It's what you said, Kurt said too. It wasn't magical. Like the moment yeah. of it happening. You know, it's just. I don't know if you try to like live in the moment. And I think I was pretty, I think I was better than my character was, if that makes sense. Like, I think I made my character a worse version of myself or I, I amplified some of the, not that I don't and didn't have faults, but I feel like I was pretty good about being like in the moment of like, enjoy this, remember this. Um, yeah. Like we would go on walks constantly and being like, I just try, you just trying to be in the moment. But then I also think some of the magic comes in retrospect where you remember things she said or that stick with you or, you know, you, like how I can remember and I do feel like my sisters and I are closer now because of that experience of me home and us all going through, you know, capital S something together, you know? Um, yeah, there was no magic. I mean, she died and it was in the middle of the night and then it's over and you're like, Oh, that is, it's, it's just bizarre. It's like, that's what it's like to have someone die in front of you. Yeah. Happened. Now that's a thing that that's what a human can look like. There she is. And then it's like, what now? And then it was like, well, we need to call the hospital and tell them. So I made the call and mm-hmm. I remember the nurse was like a little shorter with me than I would have liked. And I just remember being how basic and blunt and like, and then they come and then the men come and then they get her and then the van drives away. Just like, yeah, the minutia, the, um, the matter of fact of, oh, the business of, and then the body gets taken away is very ordinary. Yeah. You know, insane, you know, and then you, the next day the sun gets up and you, I don't know. I don't even remember. I don't remember the next day, but just, yeah, the, the ordinariness around this thing. Is- well, it becomes like, can, can you come, <laughs> yeah. come pick up this package or yeah, something? Totally. You know, it, be, it becomes an item. Yeah. It's I, bizarre. I, I believe in parts of India, the family will walk the body through the village yeah. and it's like, it's sort of the opposite. And I'm not saying I'm there or would prefer that, but like we have such a sweep it under the rug thing going on with mm-hmm. death that just doesn't exist in other cultures yeah. where they're just like, of course we have to do this. Like, of course we have to let everybody know and we have to do it ourselves mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Again, I'm not, I, I'm not even saying I'm ready for that level of game. No. And I mean, I do feel, I mean, I agree with you, but I also, I do feel like I was lucky in that my family wasn't very sweeping under the rug. Like we were very, 
talkative and communicative about what was happening and how it was going to happen and what it might look like and how much longer she might have. And do we have any questions? Do we want it want her to go to therapy afterwards? Like yeah. it was, the communication was good. It was a best case scenario for a terrible situation. Yeah. But yeah. that's Mr. Rogers. When they're talking about death, he says, if it's, if it's uh, mentionable, it's manageable. So even something mm -hmm. as daunting as death, talking about it and being honest helps. I feel like yeah. all of the pain comes in the constricted muscles, not letting it out, not letting it in. So I think you really captured that beautifully. Let's talk about John Early's birch tree story, which I just thought was so good. He talks about wanting that moment, like you said in life and like your character says in the, in the movie, I want that revelation. Mm -hmm. You're sitting on a park bench. Yeah. Yeah like a taster's choice commercial mm -hmm. with your mom and she downloads you with the meaning of life or, or yeah, some, yeah, yeah. some moment. And he says that I had that moment. Forgive me for telling you something you already know, but he's like, my mom loved birch trees. And she says, I'm coming back as a birch tree. And then he's like, I don't believe that literally, but whenever I see a birch tree now, I think of her. So is she a birch tree? And he says, sort of. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's that's it. That's the area that's so hard to talk about where it's real. It's not scientific method real. Yeah, yeah. We can't find DNA of his mother in a tree. Mm -hmm. But it's that thing like Santa Claus. I'm not saying that to put it down. Or like a lot of understandings of God, which are all mm -hmm. incomplete. How could trying to understand infinity ever be complete? Yeah, yeah. But it's our belief and our participation, not even our belief, it's our participation that sort of makes it real yeah. in this very mystical, that might be the, an exclusionary word. I just mean in sort of like a third way. We have real and we have not real. And then there's a third way. And I don't, I don't consider myself religious. I don't, I think, you know, I grew up Catholic and I think from the age of six, I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> and then you made a you made a note at your mahogany desk two years yeah. later. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> my desk. Um, but uh, but I, I so I don't really consider I'm not religious. So I don't know. So first off, the the my, the birch tree thing is something that my mom actually said to me. So in real life, my mom said she like loved birch trees. We had birch trees in our yard, and she didn't say it sentimentally. She said it as a joke because she was talking about how she loved them. And she was like, "So if I when I die, when you see a birch tree, that's me." She kind of rolled it off the tongue as a joke. Mm. Um, and I think my sisters really held on to that and was like, "I I I need her. I want to see her, so I will assign birch tree to her." And I always, I didn't think it was silly, but it didn't mean anything to me. It didn't mean as much to me as it did to my sisters. And I remembered the like um, roll off the tongue-ness that she delivered it with. But and then she died. And every time I saw a burst tree, I did think of her. And I do, I do, I, I, it's been nice. So it's like, I don't believe in it, but it doesn't matter if I believe in it or not, because she said it and it meant something to me. And right. so now it now it has meaning. And now when I see a birch tree, I think of her. But anyway, so my mom said that in real life. And then I, I gave it to another character so that the sister's storyline. It's very weird to talk so specifically about a movie that people probably haven't seen. But yeah, it's it was that's I don't I don't think they have to that it's a testament to the movie that like just talking about this stuff. I felt the same way about Paddleton. Did you see Paddleton? No, no, but I want to. 
all you need is someone dying. And if you do it all and you do it really well, you'll be on the edge of your seat and you'll, and your heart will jump out of your body. It's really, really powerful, but you know, not to overthink it, but it's like your world, Chris Kelly's reality is made by Chris Kelly. It's a phenomenon in your consciousness. Mm -hmm. So if something that was said to you that again, isn't literally true becomes true. It's as true as the chair you're sitting on. And that's just, that's a phenomenon of how we build reality. And, And it speaks to the importance of symbol and story and intuition and third way thinking and non-dual thinking. And I think it's beautiful. And, and yeah, it's, I know, I think I find it so interesting and it was just a little thing that meant nothing to me at the time. And now it means something to my sisters. When I see them, I think about them. It's kind of trickled throughout our family with like aunts and uncles and my grandparents that like we've now told them and they've seen it in the movie. So mm. everyone kind of connects it to my mom. Yeah. So it's kind of turned into this way that we like, my aunt will like send my sister birch tree stuff. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of grown into a way that it, it makes us call each other and talk more and send gifts to each other. It's, it's, it's served a purpose. That's yeah. She isn't literally a birch tree, but her saying that created decades of something, <laughs> you know? And this is why that when I say <laughs> that is something, yeah, yeah. that's why I'm adamant that Santa Claus is real <laughs> in a way. I mean, it literally leads to a holiday where we give children gifts and, and they're very excited. Yeah. And like, is uh, thoughtless or, or, or reasonless giving uh, kindness really an old man that lives in the North Pole? No. But like, it gets pretty fucking real when we conspire and it changes our behavior. You're nicer in December if you're me. Really? <laughs> I, I honk at somebody in my car on Christmas Eve. I've regretted it every Christmas Eve since. I think about it every Christmas Eve. I'm like, that wasn't very Christmas Eve of me. Yeah, I really laid on the horn, but he was he was about to hit me. But still, I could have tooted. You should have let him hit you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not talk too much about your your movie. I do love the line fake fine. God. I feel like everyone can relate to Fake Fine. That's a good it's, movie too. <laughs> isn't that great? Yeah, Fake Fine would have been a great title. But even if you haven't seen the movie, I feel like people there's like there's like the ice we're all skating on and so many people they might be going through a heartbreak, they might be going through a death, an illness, they might be going through just a fucking quarantine yeah. and a country that's upside down and we go around Wearing, as Ramdas would say, wearing spacesuits, like pretending to be these things, but mm-hmm. inside we're completely something else. So I, yeah. I just wanted to say, fake fine. I also love that you lie about writing for SNL and it never comes back. That again is restraint. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. Is that in the movie? Yeah, that I write for SNL. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that was in it more. And then we people were worried that a viewer watching it would not know if my character wrote for SNL or not, because then I do. But yeah. before I worked at SNL, when I was like in my 20s, if I was on a plane and someone was like, what do you do? I would say that I wrote for SNL. Really? I remember, wait, I remember, wait, I have not remembered this in so long. I just remember this. <laughs> wait, is this true? 
I think this has happened. I was on a plane once. I, every time I was on a plane, people asked what I did. I would say I wrote for SNL just as like a, um, I'm never going to. So on this plane, may as well. Um, <laughs> and because I was so obsessive and I read all the books and I'd watched all the sketches, there was no question I was afraid to get asked. I would just be like, yes, on Mondays, we uh, meet with the hosts. <laughs> when the plane landed, I was in such a good mood because I was like, I wrote for SNL. Um, That's then, amazing. Like, on the, I flew somewhere. And on the way back, I was flying back and I happened to sit like next to that same person that I had lied to, where he was like one seat over. And then in front of me, Will Forte sat down, who I don't know. And I was like, I can't be asked about SNL because there is literally someone oh. SNL in front of me. And it didn't, there's no good end of the story here. It never really came up or, or I was like, <gasps> kind of bad it down or like put on, like, I don't know what I did. I put on music or something. <laughs> was like, what a surprise hell to be called out in this manner that is brilliant although mm-hmm. maybe it would work for your story because it's like oh they're together i know oh yeah i was gonna say i wish that was how i got hired <laughs> oh <laughs> my god that is amazing well would be remiss to not talk a little bit about that i mean you were you were the head writer uh for was it it was one season i was there for six and i was head writer for one yeah and then you left then I left. Yeah. And I, this is, again, I only ask leading questions. I'm always just like, SNL seems like, you know what it seems like? It feels like the, the early first 10 years of stand up where it's like, it's everything. You're, you're doing it. You, you, you breathe it, you sleep it, you never sleep. You're up and you're constantly working. And then if you're like me, who has been 40 since he was 14, uh-huh. I've always been like, it might be nice to be in LA and kind of noodle on a movie and have have a phone call and do stand up maybe three times a week if I'm feeling nasty. Uh-huh. I've always wanted the more um, spacious version of show business, but my our lifestyle dictates that I have to live in a, a shitty apartment. I have to do sets three times a night. I have to be in the West Village stepping over puke, uh, watching fights and all this stuff. And I'm wondering if, well, now with all that in you, I'm just wondering what was in the decision to leave? Because it seems like, head writer, what 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 happened? The decision to leave, it's kind of weird because it was before I even got head writer. I had told Lauren I could only stay for one more year. Oh. I, I, would, I was going to be there for six years. I was already moving to LA and I'd asked my boyfriend if he would move. He said, yes, he took the, he's a lawyer. He took the bar in California. We like, he got a job. We were, we were going, I was going to have left the year before. And then he was like, please stay for one more year. He begged, please. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, I need you now. Um, but so it was like, it was kind of like, I was going to stay for one more year and I really wanted to be there for the election. So I was, I was the head writer that year, but it was, we kind of went in knowing that I was I was going to leave. So it's not like I was one year and then I was like, give me that fuck out. It's interesting. <laughs> I had built this whole story where it was like, okay, I rang the bell. I'm head writer. I don't have to do this to myself anymore. <laughs> I would say absolutely the opposite in some ways in that, um, and now I've been gone from three years. So even with more perspective, I miss that show so much. It's insane. Like I relate to you and being like a little businessman from the age of seven, but I was a little businessman who was like, let's go. Like I, I like the busyness that yeah. I thrive on the fast paceness. My, when I think of SNL, the thing I miss the most other than the people and like writing with my friends and other writing night is just shooting the shit and laughing is I really, and this is bad. This is like 
a sign of my brain's bad is I miss 11 to 11.30 on Saturday. I really loved and often hated, but loved the moment of dress rehearsal ending, finding out if your sketch was in, and then being like, it's in, but um, beat three has to be beat one. All the wigs have to change. Uh, the host doesn't want to be in it anymore. And um, all the jokes need to go. And being like, what the fuck? And like getting it to cue cards. And, you know, my writing partner, Sarah Schneider, we almost all the time work together being like, you do this. I do that. We'll do this. You know, the, the, the fact, like the walk and talk, like the, it felt like the West Wing. Like, yeah. you know, like walking and talking and moving and this show is starting at 1130 where you, whether you're ready or not, um, that the energy of that is the closest to what I imagined when I was little, you know what I mean? Yeah. Ten and being like, what is SNL like? And then experiencing it and being like, this is what I thought it would be. Yeah. Like I miss the rush of that. I really, really love it. Um, I'm watching the West Wing right now and it's for good president porn. It's so fun to just watch a fictional good president. And also, the productivity porn. I was like, look, they don't have time. They don't, they don't have, have time. I, 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 it, it rubs off on me. Bradley Woodford specifically rubs off on me. And our nanny will ask us a, a question. And I'll just answer like in the fewest words possible. And then only like 10 minutes later be like, oh, wait, you're supposed to be like, yes, thank you. Hello. Um, the, she has eaten. But like, I'll be like, she ate. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is so funny because I I I like to think I chill down when I was once I'd been at the show longer. But me and Sarah Schneider laugh because our first year we were both so excited to be there and and be rushing and not have time that even if we had a sketch cut or we only had one sketch in and it was at the end of the show and we didn't really have to do much work with it, we would find ways to just be in the halls being like I gotta go. Where is she? we? We would just pace frantically in character as like busy writer at SNL <laughs> running laps. And I'm sure people were like, he does not have a sketch in. Where is he going? But I was like, I'm here. I, I just got to go. I got to like, I'm going to walk fast that way. Then I'm going to make a turn. Then I'm going to double back by cue cards. And the oh. cue cards were like, don't stop here. You, we don't, we don't need you. You didn't write anything this week. <laughs> I, for as crazy as that show is, and you know, people talk about it, it's such a hard place to work, and it is. There's just overlap in, in what I like to do and like how my brain works. I just I'm I'm I love it. I love the combination of um TV and live theater. Like we're all putting on a play. Yeah, know? yeah. A lot. I, I'm missing it now. I think having a wife and a baby is why I'm like Although, who am I kidding? I was always worried that I, I wouldn't be able to hack it there, even though I submitted numerous times and was always hoping for it. But when I was married the first time, it was always, I was always worried I would get it because I knew I would give my entire life to it. And I'm like, how can I? But, but like these days when we're doing so little, I would love to write for SNL for one week. Yeah. Uh, everybody, if everything was uh, normal, obviously. Yeah, it's a, it's a, an interesting place. Has anyone ever said that? <laughs> I want to know why you can't resubmit a sketch. A sketch kills, it gets cut for time, or or it just needs a tweak. I, that would drive me crazy. I think I ask everybody that is on SNL or writes for SNL, I'm like, why can't you just go, we all loved it, let's just pitch it again. You can sometimes. I mean, like, you know, usually in January, the hosts are like um, – like some wrestler or like someone you've never heard of. And that's when everyone's like, all right, bring out the old sketches. (laughs) Uh, 
So it does happen, but it really is. And I've fallen prey to it too, where I'm like, this killed. It didn't go because the host didn't want to do it or something dumb that has nothing to do with how great the sketch was. Yeah. And then just you table read it one week later and it just doesn't have surprise or magic to it. And, you know, you like newness at the show. You want newness. And it's right. probably not going to pop at the table the same way the other things did. And so when you're going to pick sketches, you want the new flashy, funny thing. Right. Which, of course, I think even as you're saying that, I can identify the problem in that. It, there, there could be like a, a colder, less fun, less 70s cocaine version of SNL where you're like, uh, I know it didn't kill at the table. Everybody seems bored with it, but I think it'll work. You know what I mean? But I, I, even as I'm saying that, I'm like, I don't want to change it. It's fun. It's, it's an institution. Has anyone ever said it's an institution? Uh, but like, why, why, why mess with it? Um, <laughs> Ooh, one more compliment for you because I want to hear your thoughts on this. It's a writing question. I feel like when I was uh, doing Crashing or anything that I've done, I was always trying to encourage the writers to write in world, uh, meaning where are you? Like what's near you? Who else is there? What might happen? And there's not an exception in your movie. It's like every location – it seems there's like a great moment or a joke that is like when you barf on the wine date and you come out and you're wiping the wall. I'm like, that's such a, but it takes a deliberate writer to be like, and then we cut and the guy's waiting for him to come back and we see him wiping the wall. Is that something you try to be deliberate about when you're writing is, is to get your imagination going, not just write dialogue where people are talking about stuff, but to, to really flesh it out. Do you think that might come from your improv what does that make you think of? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Um, yeah. Or like, uh, yeah, I guess maybe it comes from my sketch background or if I tend to like, uh, if I write a sketch where one main thing is happening or one piece of exposition or one story's happening, I'm like, let's have another runner in the background or let's have a top and a bottom on the scene or let's yeah. have another game going. So you don't realize it's exposition or you can be, or actually you can be burying the exposition and you're not realizing it. That's right. That's right. That's great. Or I'm just like you, I've seen the scene and the two people sitting at a table, I'm not going to want to watch this for so long. So let's, let's just even cut to something else. I mean, the throw up thing is just, um, unfortunately another thing that did happen to me, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, so it's, it's a lot of like taking a real thing that happened to me and then, writing the real thing and then yes ending it to see what you like if then that if this then what um, yeah. can make it funnier so like mm-hmm. i did really go on a date with a guy and I, I thought we were having dinner and and we weren't we were just having drinks and so i was on an empty stomach and i was so nervous on the date and i had so much wine and i was like i'm going to throw up at the table so i <laughs> I, I i realized i was gonna i realized i was gonna throw up at the table literally 30 seconds after i had legitimately gone to the bathroom so i didn't have the excuse of like how to go to the bathroom i didn't have the excuse of one other drink because we had just gotten drinks so i was like i have no way out of this like and i do remember wait, i remember this i remember so specifically in the moment being like is part of my life going to be i threw up right now on the table at the plate is that part of my life and so i just excused myself and i literally as i was walking there i barely got in the bathroom i got inside and i threw up all over the walls it hit me bounced back off the walls onto my face it threw up all over my face and clothes I i washed my face off i cleaned my mouth out with hand soap so all of that really did happen it just didn't happen when my mom was dying so i like remembered it and put it there 
But what did I, you do to your shirt? I don't know. I don't think it was on it enough or it was dark. I, I, I think I got away with it. I think I got ah! I came back and I think I got away with it. But like you're saying, then I added a little shot of like, instead of throwing up inside, what if I threw up on the outside of the door so that he has to like clean the outside of the door to be yes. clear, you know? I think I got away with it. And I think there's moments like this where I wish I could go back and ask the person, like just cold DM somebody and be like, hey, um, we did, we went on one date nine and a half years ago. Notice anything fishy? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we kissed at the end of it too, but it was like really brief, but I had, I barfed like four minutes earlier. So I was like, uh, you gotta keep this right and tight. Otherwise he'll notice. And it was not good. I love everything about that. It didn't I really th- answer your question. Oh, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I mean, if anybody listening is like, oh, I could never interview somebody. Even the bad questions lead to great moments. Who cares? Well, no, but that was a good question. Or like, I think maybe what I do is this an answer to your question is I tend to like collect random weird things that amuse me or things that have happened that don't have a place. I've always yeah. thought this was funny. This thing my boyfriend does always makes me laugh. This thing is dumb. This person said this to me once. And they don't really warrant a whole sketch. I don't need to write a 10-page Kate McKinnon sketch about it. Um, so I just keep it in my pocket. And then if I'm writing a scene and I'm like, this is boring. Oh, she could go here, you know? Yeah, yeah. God, I would. Do you do that? How do I you do. I, I was just going to say, I think I have a folder. I wonder if this will pay out. In my phone called... Yeah, it's called Story Gas Station. Violent, <laughs> violent, crazy person accosts a woman at the pump. She sprays him with gas. That's just that's just something that could happen. And I, it, it occurred to me, I was like, if someone's attacking you at a gas station, you have a weapon. Yeah. You have a nasty hose of gasoline. You're not you're not helpless. And I was like, I've I've never seen that. That could be something. I can't wait for a couple of years from now to watch something you've made about something completely different and then see that in it that you're like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll know you found a way. <laughs> and then I just wrote down the name of a very old manager I met and he had a very young girlfriend. And it's just a note about the awkwardness when you're like, is this your granddaughter? Like you want to say, mm-hmm. is this your granddaughter? Unfortunately, that's uh, <laughs> too common. At airport, go, go, go. You have to fart and it needs to be silent or they'll smell the pot. Oh, it's when you're it's when you're at the airport and there's drug dogs. This is like you want the fart to perfectly overwhelm the pot (laughs) at the right time. Is that what you mean? That is exactly what I mean. And you got it from at airport. Go, go, go. You have to fart and it needs to be silent or they'll smell the pot. No, that's great. Because then you see a dog like 10 paces ahead and you're like, okay, at nine paces. (laughs) To give it time to perfectly envelop the pot smell. But then you're like, a dog's got to know that trick. If a dog can't smell past a fart, then what's the dog doing? Do they train them for that specifically? I hope they do. Because it's... What is the other thing they're training? (laughs) It's one of the few smells human beings can mask. That feels like, okay, so then I feel like in the movie you should do that. Okay, this is now an animated movie I'm pitching. In this animated movie, or... You do that, and then as you walk past, the dog looks at you, and the dog rolls his eyes, but lets you go. That's so good. Like that is something I've, I've that not something I thought of, but that is like hits me as perfectly funny of being like, could a fart do that? Yes, um, it checks out to me. This is another one. I'm just having fun now. 
the guy, because I know guys like this, I was I was editing something with a friend and he realized he should break up with his girlfriend and he just called her. I was sitting next to him and as if he was ordering a pizza, I just watched him be like, yeah, it's not working out. And as someone who has to plot and plan and script out every possible reaction, I just was... To be honest, I was sitting there in awe that someone yeah. could just be like, yeah, it's all personal. I, I just don't feel like it's going anywhere. <laughs> I would have to fully interview that person being like, what was your upbringing? Why is your mind at peace enough to be able to do that? I, I not worried. <laughs> Doing that in front of you is weird. I couldn't. Well, that's I think that's what would make it more relatable is my character would have to be as uncomfortable as you and I are thinking about yeah. it. Because in the moment, I think I was like, should I be here for this? Yeah. Like, it's sort of like a New York thing. The answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. And it was dead. <laughs> but I mean, like, writing down those moments, my experience, and it's maybe it's one of my favorites, I don't know about you, is you're writing and it just comes, it comes to you. You don't even have to consult a note. Mm. You just realize, but this is what I'm talking about. Whether or not you or I have something profound to say about it, to me, the thing that's missing in so much of the writing that I read is I'm like, no one took the time to imagine what it would really be like. Because you said it yourself. It's like, can we yes and the idea? Okay, I'm puking. What else might happen? You have these moments where they're complaining about their lives and then someone in a wheelchair goes by. We all have that. You're complaining about something stupid, or in their case, it's profound. But like, no, yeah. And then you're like, a little bit of perspective. But to to know that this is the moment where that can happen in a movie is to me the difference between a movie where you're watching an outline. The thing I the thing I say about movies when Val and I watch movies because I'm annoying. I think is I go, and this happens now because it's in the script. You know what I mean? I, I do that to my boyfriend all the time too. Where I'm like, <laughs> "This is not good, and here's why." Or stop it. Did Did he pick up on it? Because Val now does it. She'll yeah, be like, "Yeah, now he does too." Well, his big thing now is he's constantly like ADR because he's used to me saying that. So he's oh. constantly calling out ADR because I. It's like teaching a parrot to talk. I'm like, oh give, boy. Give me Bradley Whitford's uh, email because when we watch um, West Wing, I feel like it was sort of before the art of ADR had really been perfected or because it was all walk and talks. Somebody's lips will be flapping. You're not hearing them. And he's saying something else, but there's Bradley Woodford, the consummate professional being like, we need to get this in front of Congress. And I'm just like, Wait, it doesn't that even... is, but that is a huge, I don't know if you're saying the same thing. That is a huge pet peeve of mine where like literally in a reverse shot, you can see someone's lips moving, but they're not yeah. talking. To and yeah. I'm going to go on record and say it does happen in my movie once and it kills me and I know when it happens and I watch for it and I am furious. And I got to tell you, Pete, there's no way around it. Oh. <laughs> they literally had to be like pencils down. We are done making this movie. This is not a big deal. No one will notice this. And it's such a non thing. It does not matter. Like this happens all the time, but like I can see over yeah. someone that her lips are moving and she's not talking because we had to steal it. And it's literally nothing. And when I watch it, I'm like, trash. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it definitely happened in Crashing, too. Digital Zoom? Did you try a push-in? Oh, oh, Pete, did we try a digital Zoom? (laughs) 
it? Can we animate it? Can we reshoot it? Can we, do we need oh. a scene? I, no, there was no way. It doesn't matter at all. It's just such a good example of, oh, like when you notice a little pet TV thing, and well, then you're like, I have to do it. That's one of the pleasures. I remember one of the best takes we had in the pilot of Crashing, one of the background actors who was eating pizza laughs because he was listening. I would too. Mm-hmm. And I don't, it, we weren't mad at him or anything, but I was like, oh, fuck, we can't use this take. And the guy uh, mirrored the screen and used the guy eating pizza from another take. And Chris, tell me if you relate to this. One of the things that drew me to making TV, making movies, is the control. I, mm-hmm. I love that you can tell a group of motorcycles to turn their engines off because you're shooting. Yes. I love that you can wipe out something. I love that you can ADR something. And that's something that Judd said. You you directed our second episode. So you are our first director, which yeah. I actually didn't even remember. I had to think back and I was like, oh, my God, Chris was our first yeah. director. Yeah. And he always said get clean singles because he, he, wants, he wants to be able to build it however he wants to build it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem is I like those, what you know, like dirty overs and stuff. Yeah, Yeah, I like a dirty single. It's also so funny, too, that that mirroring thing you're talking about, I have in my movie, too, and I always know where it is, but I think no one else would know. But there's a thousand things like that in everything anyone makes. Um, But, I mean, I'm noticing Bradley Whitford's panty line, and I didn't notice, if it's any comfort. (laughs) And and I've seen that movie three times, and I am that guy. So if it gives you any... (laughs) Any quantum of solace. It really does. It really does. We measure solace in quantums. I don't know if you knew, <laughs> if you knew that. Um, God, what, what is your, when you went, so Maude Apatow was in Other People and then you came to direct. Yeah. This is a sincere, it's not a leading question. What was that like for you? What was it like making Crashing with a bunch of people who kind of didn't know what we were doing at that point? We were very new. I didn't know what I was doing. I am I here? <laughs> I, was, I was truly like not in any negative way towards you guys because you guys were lovely but i was very much like get me out of here before they are like who is this guy i felt like a fraud like a little i, I it was lovely because you were lovely and i'm a fan of the show and i was so flattered that that judge made that connection but it was cool but it was the first thing i, I directed my movie and then this was the next thing i had done so i i I had yeah. never directed somebody else's thing where I was coming in, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was very like nice that Judd made the connection. But I mean, I, it's Judd Apatow, so I was very stressed out. I remember when I cast Maude in the movie, I mean, she's just so talented and subtle and funny and an incredible great. actor. And I was very excited to have her in the movie until like day two when they were like, Judd's going to stop by and watch. And I was like, oh yeah, her dad is Judd. Oh fuck, no, she's got, she's got <laughs> <laughs> and I was constantly like, so he's coming today. Where is he going to be? How long will he be here? When is he leaving? Is he gone? <laughs> Just yes. so that this man who's directed so much and is so good was going to be like casually the dad watching from, I was, I was going out of my mind. Did he, did he kind of chime in? No, he was fine and normal. He didn't do, he was great and lovely. It was only my nerves, but he yeah. came for a little bit and was supportive. And He's a force, man. When he was on set, I'm trying to remember if he was on set when you directed. I don't think he, he was. Wasn't. He wasn't. Yeah. When he was, everybody, like the, everybody on our crew was great. But if there had been like a crusty or a, or a grumpy person, they were the most hot too. They were there early. They're getting them tea or whatever. <laughs> 
were doing. And when he left, there it was a mixed bag. On one hand, you knew um, the frequency had lowered. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, there was like a little bit of like a less uh, intensity. But then there was also the bad less intensity because you'd see that same guy who would have been hot too. Now he's reading a newspaper and you're like, well, fuck. <laughs> like, I, I thought I thought you liked me. Uh, but, but that's just what happens when you're when you're a planet. I have a, I wasn't going to mention this, but just because we both love ADR. I remember we use a take in that episode where I had to ADR Tom Hanks. Do you remember that moment by oh, any chance? Yeah, yeah. I, had, I there was noise over Tom Hanks, so that's ADR. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> right. so much. Everything is ADR. Like we, the season one of the show, the other two that I did, we had so much ADR in it that I was like, surely there, this is more than in all of television history. Yeah, you, you know, you edit things down to to get down to twenty one minutes. You have to cut words and half sentences and syllables out of things. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible that it sounds real. My my hope is this is really my hope currently is that with streaming, they won't care if your episode is forty minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, I'm like, who cares? Like, I, why? I don't think they will. Like, we the first season of our show is on Comedy Central, and now season two is going to be on HBO Max. So oh, great! I think there is a chillness now to how long how long it can be. Because we had Jed, some episodes of Crashing would bleed over thirty, but that that was the Jed factor. But I'm hoping that TV just goes like, and some of them went under. Some of them were like 23 minutes um, because he was like, it should be a short episode. Like he had this weird sixth sense. It's like we had a long one. Now we have a short one. We have a heavy one. Now we should have a light one. It was really like talking directly to his gut, like to his instinct um, and benefiting from that expertise. But it's so funny because we were, we reconnected over Twitter and I think this is the the paranoia of the comedian. Um, so maybe you can relate. Is that like I, I noticed that you would fave a tweet of mine, and I, I obviously I told you how much I love your Twitter. And then I was like, I wonder if Chris would do it. And there was a part of me that was like, he probably hated me. He probably I know, I know. I and I'm not fishing. I'm I'm talking about the. Oh, this is such a. This is like almost. Um, I mean, I'm sad to hear you say that because that's of course not the truth. But then also glad to hear you say it because it's just a reminder that we all fucking feel this way about everybody. You know? That's right. I, it's like you know, <laughs> because you're so busy. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I remember you faved. A t- this is weird to say, but this is the times we live in. You faved well, a tweet well, of mine where I said, "You ever write an email and then go back and add all the pleases and thank yous?" Absolutely, I stand by the fave. I stand. <laughs> I, I go back. I add them. I you got to go back and you got to add and take away exclamation points. Usually, I yes. And I delete. Yes. I go back and I shorten because I'm very verbose. So I go back and I'm like, no one wants to read this. Get it up, get it up, get it up a line. And a great Jesse Klein bit where she goes, you ever, when someone replies to your email, you go back and reread your email just to kind of admire the work you put into it. And I was like this, that's why I mentioned it. I was like, it's just so helpful to go like, because it was stressful. Like your two episodes, it was stressful. There were a lot of background There was a lot of stand-up, which I fucking hated filming. Not always, but it could be really hard. Turns out if you script Pete Kills, it's so much harder 
then you can't just write that you kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to act like you're killing. It's hard to kill with. Ac- it's impossible to kill with background actors. Yeah, I would yeah. say. Um, but you did I mean, a really, really was, great job. I mean, that's how it was with in, in other people. We also shot an improv scene too, where it was like, my intention was like, I'm going to put Jesse Clemens up there with real improv comedians. We're going to shoot a real improv show with a real audience. This will take 10 minutes. How long does an improv show take? And we'll move on. Yeah. And then you're like, no, it's like half improv. And then you have to like do it again for another take. But how do you do improv again? So yeah. it was like remembering what you said, but trying to recreate the magic, but then the audience isn't laughing because they've heard it. It's, yeah, that and there was the same thing with stand up where it's like you're trying to capture this lightning in a bottle authentic thing, but it's also very scripted, very choreographed, very false. That's the nightmare. <laughs> and this is how I watch TV now. Yeah. You're like, if you're seeing three or four angles, that means they did it 20 times. So there's that great scene. I thought of your background actors. So you have <laughs> this very self-realized young, uh, I guess, we, can we say gay boy? He's a young boy who's, okay. is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Justin in Other People? Yeah, Justin in Other People. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he does this, I found it very moving, this very liberated, almost like Lady Gaga-esque lip sync dance. And it, the joke of it is that it's very provocative. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is one of those situations where you do want looks of discomfort on the background actors, but when you're doing something, and we would occasionally do this on Crashing, where the point is that it's inappropriate, mm-hmm. sometimes, I've said this a million times because apparently it really had an impact on me, would have background actors complain or want to leave? Or some, one of them left, like an old sweet woman walked off, and I was like, no, that's the story. We're telling oh, the story. Whoa. And I, I thought of that scene. I was like, yeah, yeah. you have to give them a pep talk where you're like, we know the joke is yeah. that everybody's uncomfortable that a, a young boy is doing a hypersexual dance, but it's a fine line, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, that is interesting. We, they were all, no one, no, no one walked off, which is good. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. we, got, we, got like the, we got like the earnest reactions, and which were good. And then you're we like, let's actually now put the camera on them and, and give them the direction to be confused or surprised. And, and the authentic ones always are better. Yes. John Early touching his heart, though, in that scene, that he's like, yeah, like with him and, and find, sees what's beautiful about it is that somebody I is, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really do too. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, let's talk about the meaning of life. We're we're at the end. <laughs> let's get into it. Well, really, I, I I've only carved out two hours of your time and I want to get you back to complaining about movies with your boyfriend. <laughs> but um and I know you already said you're not uh religious. Um, but I see in your work uh a value of the moment, a value of, of life. And even, as I said, with the birch tree things, an appreciation for things that aren't true, but sort of point to something that profound. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you hold on to in your life that gives you comfort, that gives you some perspective? Because this is my favorite question, because it always drops me into my body. We're floating in outer space. Yeah, yeah. We're alive. We know we're alive. We know we die. Uh, we we know it matters for some reason to tell stories. Yeah. We know it matters to be kind and to love. 
what just what do you think is going on here? It doesn't have to be the answer. I'm just like, what do you tell yourself? No, it's okay. I do have the answer actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the Zoom cuts out, or you're on you're on mute. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I guess my short answer is I don't know what there is after. So I don't want to ever presume to know. If I would guess, I would say when you die, you die. But like, I don't know. I'm not gonna. I think if there's anything out there, it's nothing anyone's ever guessed. Um, so I, I love that. Nobody's ever said that. I, I kind of take solace in, I guess, family, which is sort of the point of the movie, too, is the character based on me is constantly like, what am I looking for? What's the answer? Where's my beautiful moment? Where's what, you know, and, and it's just like, take care of your sisters, which is how I feel in real life, I guess. I, if I don't really necessarily think there's anything after this, it's just being good to the people around you. And so I do feel... Um, yeah, I guess family is the answer for me, like my sisters, but also my extended family. And um, yeah. Um, I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know. It, because that is your life. It's like that beautiful line you say to your mom. Again, I don't want to ruin the movie for people, but I don't think you could. Um, where you say, I wish we could go around the world and see everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. in that moment, I was like, that's interesting. My brain works this way. And I go, as if because so many of us think this as if the point of life is to like see everything. (laughs) You know what I mean? It kind of raises an interesting question. Are we, are we here to see the Coliseum? Is that like the point of life? And then your mom says, we're going to see my whole world at dinner tonight. And I, and I'm just bawling. (laughs) A conversation we had, and it's still a thing I think in general now, which is like, my thought was my mom, I think had a good life and was overall, you know, if you were going to see two sentences about her, was a happy woman who was married and had three kids and she was a school teacher and like had a lot of great things happen in her life. But I also viewed her at least then as someone who was 49 when she died and she didn't really travel much. She went to Italy once, but didn't get to see the world and um, got married at 19. And um, I think I did feel like you could have done more and seen more and like you didn't get to retire and travel and do all these things. And um Uh, my dad in the movie is actually my stepdad. I'm like, oh, you married a crummy guy first before you got remarried. Like you've had a hardship in your life. I want want more for you. I want you to travel or be richer or do that. You know, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And I felt very much like there there was a a specific time between when it was clear that she was going to die and when she was like, quote unquote, sick. You know what I mean? There's like kind of four or five months in there where you're like, I still feel pretty good. How weird that I'm going to die soon. And then you're like, I actually feel bad. So in yeah. those months, I was like, let's go, baby. Let's get on a plane. Let's go here and here and here. And I want to see the whole, you should see the whole world. And she did say my whole world is at dinner tonight. And I remembered that. Hmm. And it's something even now, 10 years later, wherever, where I still struggle with that because I get it. And I, I think that's important to remember that life is about the people. But I also, there's that part of me that does crave the like, I want to go and see and do everything. And I am like, I get bored and right. It's not enough, but it should be enough. And I'm going to meditate and remember <laughs> that that is enough, but it's also not, you know, like I also, yeah, I like thrive on the experiences too, as well as the people. So. Yeah. You want to be an SNL pretending to be the busy writer. Yeah. And if someone's there, great. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, I think there's I just. want to rush past someone I love. <laughs> 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 you're, you're so funny. I, uh, I just, I'm just really enjoying laughing. 
it's, it's whenever Val and I laugh hard, she always goes, "It's good to laugh again." And it's like we we laugh every day, but she says it as if like we're we're like quiet, <laughs> quiet, meek people. But there's so much wisdom wisdom to, to unpack there, and I really think the answer is both. Is yeah. the answer that everything is? I always say this, but when I'm rocking my baby, that and it's not just because of the importance of my baby; it's because the life that is in her is life, is capital L life. And it's so unencumbered by agenda or story. She doesn't even really know her race or, or, or her name. I say so often, what's your name? And she says, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's just life. And when I can really drop anchor into that animating, animating sensation in her, that's also of course in me, I go, holy shit, that's everything. But yeah. also the zeal of that life, the yearning of that force to, if we're going to anthropomorphize it and make it God, create everything that it might do everything. There's like a drive. You yeah. see it in the reaching of tree branches, reaching for more light, more leaves, more fruit. Like it's not just renunciate and like I should be in a cave and know that I am the end and the beginning and it's all inside of me. But it's also like, man, watching your movie, like I said, one of the emotional parts was remembering what it was like. I love that you shot at the real UCB mm-hmm. so, so we could see it because it's gone now. But going down those smelly stairs underneath a Gelson's, mm-hmm. I miss that. Getting in a cab afterwards, yeah, yeah. feeling the rush of, in your case... Bradley Whitford's going to do your movie. Molly Shannon's going to do you. Like it's it's both. We don't have to. In fact, if you push it away, it's just another way of it trapping you. You let it flow through you, even though you know it's all pass. It's a passing show. It's fucking fun. It's not a mistake that it's fun. Yeah, to, to do stuff. So it's both. I and love also, it. And also, when I think of SNL, I mean, I know I make the joke of like rushing around, but also I do. Like some of my, you know, when I talked about, like you talked about your wife giving birth or I, I talked about my mom dying, um, being like, this is a, a moment. This is a, a day of my life. And I'm, I'm with the people I love in this big, crazy experience. I also do feel that way about SNL. Like I do have memories of, of, um, as superficial as it might sound, cause it's not the same thing as birth or death. I do have moments of like, I remember there was this one specific night during the election year where me and Sarah Schneider had written a thing for Kate McKinnon to do for the election. She was playing Hillary. Oh, it was when she was playing Hillary and the real Hillary Clinton was on. And the three of us huddled and we're like, we'd all wanted to work at SNL since we were little kids and it was happening and we were the head writers. And I knew Kate before I was at SNL, we were at UCB together. And we had that grateful moment of like truly stop and remember that this is happening, that you are the people that get to do this on this night. So um, it is a little bit like I want to focus on family and that's important to me. And then there's also the career rushing around that I love. But part of the reason I love the career rushing around so much is because of the people I get to like rush around with. Yeah, I I do have those, like that's another night of my life that I remember where I'm like, I I love the, um, it's not just like, oh, I'm busy, a career man. I love the like, oh, my friends and I are like making a fucking thing together and this thing we've always wanted to work on. How cool we get to do that. That's right. I don't know if that story sounded annoying, but it was more. I like, loved that. Are you crazy? Like that's the kind of stuff that like fulfills me too. Or I'm like, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what that answer would. I just, I just thought of that. So, I are you crazy? That's one of my favorite things you said. There's this page in Be Here Now that I love. And he's listing all of these like holy things that can drop you into into the transcendent, oh. and and it's like yoga and meditation, and uh, and then I think it starts getting a little more earthly because he talks about uh, making love or or great music or great art, and then one of them on the list is the rush of an achievement, mm-hmm. and I was like, what a very to use our Christian language like a very secular example, but that's one of the great paradoxes of my life is making peace with the fact that let's say hitting a home run in baseball. Yeah, we could sit on the sidelines and and be a philosopher and be like, this is meaningless. Like it's, it's a, it's a list of rules. Uh, Home base is nothing. Uh, The ball is nothing. Uh, We're all dead. But like, what a, what a gift and a paradox and a mystery hidden I'm going to use the God word as God likes to do in an unlikely place. The thrill of a home run can actually drop your anchor into your, to use again, religious language into your soul. It can yeah. enliven you. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a church service. It can be huddling with Kate McKinnon and Sarah Schneider and going, this is fucking happening. Yeah. And in my memory of it, it really doesn't have anything to do with like the sketch was great or people liked it or it had nothing to do with that. It was more just like, this is fun and cool. I've loved this show since I was little. I, I like writing. I like comedy. These are my two best friends. This is as fulfilling to me as anything else where I want to be like, yes, family is, is obviously important to me, but this, the, the way I feel when I get to like make fun stuff with friends, I feel bad, but is like very powerful to me too. And then I'm like, that's bad. And that's crass. And that sounds like you only care about work, but I'm like, I love, I love the thrill of not, yeah, I don't like I said, I don't even remember if the sketch was good or not. It may have sucked. Um, but I like the making, <laughs> I like the making of it with friends. Like I like the making of things. That's it. Yeah. We we started this conversation by saying we're we're goal oriented and we just want to yeah. get there. Yeah. And then we're ending with a story of a very touching huddle. <laughs> and I'm saying, in my language, that relationship, that exchange of energy is what I would call divine. So it doesn't even matter, religious, unreligious. It's like so fun to see you plugging into the into life and living it. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I think it's a tough balance too because it's very. And I've suffered from this too of always thinking of like what next, what next, what next, or am I doing good enough? Or or I, you know, especially at SNL, it's very much like oh my god, on Monday in two days I got to come up with a new thing. Um, that there's that temptation to always be looking ahead to what next, and so I really tried to remind myself. And I think my mom was a huge part of it where she um, of like remembering of being like stopping and being like, this is cool. This yeah. day is special. This moment is something like, don't look back and remember how cool it was like, stop and know it now. Like, um, okay. that's it. But I'm going to say it on a podcast. So it sounds like something I do in practice. And I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> But that the other thing I'm thinking is like the, the inability to, to drop the rushes of life. There's nothing to worry about. It all works out. It, there's a natural progression in my experience. I'm older than you, that I you just see it start to kind of naturally. It's still there, but it gets quieter, and that's and that's and that's what it sounds like your mom experienced. I know she only had 49 years, but she clearly had a lot of wisdom, and I'm glad she shared yeah. it with you. Yeah, me too. It's beautiful. Well, that was that was deep. Let's end on a light note. 
Um, I like to ask people if they can remember the time in their life they laughed the hardest. That's a hard question. Uh, so I'll accept any answer that involves very laughing really, really hard. Maybe you're with your boyfriend. Uh, maybe you're a kid. Uh, maybe somebody farted. Maybe somebody fell down. Maybe somebody ate a pot brownie. Uh, maybe, maybe you threw up on your own face. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think because like their whole life is so tough. I mean, definitely the answer is a fart. I just don't. <laughs> I don't remember when, but for sure it's a fart. Yes. Um, How um, about an Academy Award for Plemons? Plemons is specifically his reaction to your mom, the character's fart in the movie because there is a fart in your movie when they're in bed it's the blow to the scene and it's so it's so real and so sweet and I'm like see there's a place for a good fart joke oh I don't know if I have an answer for the hardest I've ever laughed but when you said my boyfriend it made me think of something that really makes me laugh now but I don't think this is a good enough answer but I'm going to say it anyways so my boyfriend is big on um I don't know. So, um, do you are you on Instagram? I'm on the gram. He he does a thing now where when we watch reality shows together, like um, Real Housewives or Below Deck, he doesn't watch the show. As he's watching it, and as soon as a character he doesn't like is mean to another character, I mean not character, they're people. He gets on their Instagram and starts attacking them. So he <laughs> comments. He literally comments on like watching Below Deck, which takes place on the ship, and he'll comment like, um, "You should have been to the deck at eight a.m. They told you that last night." Like, just <laughs> he comments like really not not like mean like you're a bitch. He comments like you can learn a lot from Ashley. He comments like really <laughs> measured things that he's right about. But what the fuck is he doing? He's like a lawyer and a normal person. <laughs> I never know that's what he's doing until I'm like the next day I'm like on the toilet going to the bathroom scrolling through my phone I'll click on you know the popular page I'll click on like a real housewife and when you click on it the most recent comment is from my boyfriend (laughs) being like don't talk to Luann that way and I'm like what is going on I don't know that was really makes me laugh because I just I love it I troll around on different Bravo celebrities Instagrams to see what he thinks (laughs) gotten so bad that sometimes he'll be like huh why doesn't this person from below deck have an instagram anymore they must have deleted it and then i look it up and i'm like no they didn't and he's like well i can't look at it and i'm like you were blocked so my boyfriend has been blocked by most of below deck <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's not the hardest i've left in my life but i really like it which is funny because i'm pretty sure you can spell blocked with the words below deck <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> He, he does it all the time. It's like a weird thing that he does. And he's a very like normal man that this is a weird thing he does. He does it to Britney Spears. He loves her. So sometimes if on the popular page, I'll click on a picture of Britney and he's just commented like, you look great. Oh my God. <laughs> busy on Instagram and it really makes me laugh. He's an ambassador for justice and joy on the internet. Yeah. Good for him. A fart is definitely the answer. Um, Chris, now I'm loving how vulnerable or you're feeling like me thinking you uh, didn't uh, like me <laughs> because that's a great answer. It's a great answer. In fact, you were a, a, a fantastic guest. I really, really enjoyed this. I hope you did. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. My pleasure. I sincerely hope we get to work together again. I, I can't yeah. wait to see the second season uh, it, of the other two, yeah. uh, which will be on the max. I'm excited. Yeah. Is it already shot? 
No, we got shut down during the pandemic. Oh, why? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we have to. We have to go. We have like half left to shoot next month. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, well, good luck with that. I'm excited, and thank, uh, thank you for taking the time. Would you say the guest says keep it crispy at the end? Would you mind saying keep it crispy? Keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> In that small moment, I was like, is he going to say no? <laughs> In that small moment, I was like, am I going to say no? But I, I just am worried because it's a podcast that I, I don't know if people can tell. I did a little eyebrow thing, but maybe hopefully you could tell in the, in the vocalization. I feel like anybody <laughs> listening knows there was an eyebrow movement. Thank you so much, shirtless George Clooney. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, I hope to see you soon in real life. Yeah, you too. Have a good night. Uh, you too, pal. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So crispy. My eyes can't